prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Monday, March 6th. Today, we're going to continue a topic that I brought up last week. Can leftists answer a question honestly? Now, the resounding answer from both True Social and Twitter was not surprising. No. But what about a corollary to this rule of public discourse? Can a leftist hear the truth and be swayed by it? To answer that question, I'm going to bring on two men who have stepped onto the battlefield of information right now. Frequent guest of our show and now fellow with the Center for Renewing America, former FBI agent Stephen Friend. Now, Steve served for seven years in the Omaha division of the FBI, working primarily on major criminal investigations on Indian reservations in Nebraska. He took a transfer to Jacksonville division and started working out of the Daytona Beach resident agency in order to work violent crimes against children or VCAC. And that's the FBI's acronym for child pornography cases. But whistleblower activity cut his work short in August of 2022. So we're going to discuss the specifics of what he did, why he did it, and what that actually means. And then we're also, for our second joint interview, going to welcome back George Hill. Now, George is a retired supervisory uh, intelligence analyst from the Boston field office of the FBI and retired senior chief in the United States Navy. He spent more than five years working for the National Security Agency and had a combined 26 years with the United States Marine Corps and the United States Navy in the field of intelligence. His knowledge and mastery of these topics related to the uh, U.S. intel community allow him to teach at the college level in an adjunct professor role. So Steve and George, thank you both for joining me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Gents, um, and you're kind of bailing me out of a little bit of a bind because uh, I had a guest booked and uh, he's an interesting guy. We teased him last week. And then sure enough, God has a say in what happens in our lives and decided to blow down the power stations next to his house. So he's without power. So you guys are going to fill in. But I think it's timely because we're going to discuss a topic um, that popped up at the end of this week. We kind of knew it was coming. You guys had an instinct because you had reporters reaching out to you. I'm going to start with George, but I want to read this quote. I found this on eminently quotable, and it refers to something that I said on Dan Bongino's show uh, on Saturday night. So uh, anyone who's listening to Unfiltered on Fox has already heard me say this, but I want to kind of get into the the origins of this particular quotation, and then I want to just dive into how it relates to both of your situation, starting with George. So eminently quotable is a website. It says, uh, the phrase originates with World War II bombers. Uh, And it comes in different variations, but essentially there's one of two variations that we're used to hearing. If you're not catching flack, then you're not over the target. And sort of the corollary or the reverse of that is, you know you're over the target where the flack is heaviest. It dates back to World War II. As we said, it's become kind of a metaphor that's equated to tax attacks done on people. And uh, moreover, flack is sort of uh, just another word for criticisms or, you know, strong criticisms that happen when you're telling the truth. Um, The final thing they say in this little website is um, the resistance gets heaviest when you are revealing what people who have an interest in hiding things continue to try hide. I think that is a perfect analogy for what you guys experience with a number of different pieces. And Phil's going to be able to bring them up as we talk. But uh, George, how many reporters reached out to you and um, how did you go about sort of uh, vetting their questions or did it go through an attorney or, you know, what did they ask you and how did it come out? So I had two reporters reach out to me. First was um, CNN, Gail, somebody or other, her last name escapes me. And then um, Adam, also last name escapes me from Rolling Stone. And Gail's uh, inter- uh, email was um, 
I think, you know, pretty professional, just, Hey, I'd like to ask you some questions, you know, pretty, uh, general in nature and, um, not confrontational in tone. Adams, on the other hand, um, contained uh, screen captures from uh, Twitter posts and asked me if I wanted to walk back my statements. Um, it was far more um, uh, confrontational uh, than Gales. And um, knowing both those organizations, I decided that I would not respond to either one of them. And I would allow uh, the attorney that's representing myself and I believe Steve, uh, Jason Foster, uh, to respond. Um, I didn't feel any need to engage with them, uh, especially uh, Adam, because I knew just from his tone that uh, his mind was pretty much just made up and it was just going to be a waste of time. That's fair. Um, out of curiosity, do you have any intentions of walking back any statements that you've made on Twitter? No, um, you know, People who have known me for decades, um, and I've said it out loud, if I say something or I write something, I'm never going to take it back because I actually thought about it before I said it. Um, to the best of my knowledge, um, unless someone can show me some proof, there's never been an instance where I said, I wish I hadn't said that or what I meant was, no, if I said it, I wrote it, I meant it. That's fair. And and for what it's worth, our mutual connection in Boston was very clear that that was your reputation, that you have a kind of a straight shooter, a uh, fixed and uh, discriminating speaker. When you say things, you tend not to overstate them and you also don't walk them back. So I I, I think that plays out from the people that I've met that know you. Um, Steve, I'm going to pivot over towards you. Did you have similar contact, same or um, or more? Uh, yeah, I think I was the original uh, person that, that CNN reached out to because I actually did an interview. It was with uh, Elena Train and Annie Greer, I think was her last name. And they reached out to me, uh, requested an interview, but because I'm now with the uh, Center for Renewing America, I have a communications uh, department, I guess, for lack of a better term. And uh, they facilitated an interview between me and those two journalists but uh, unfortunately for them, uh, Rachel Semmel, who is the communications director and uh, our vice president, were on the phone as well. So did a, uh, a discussion with them on background, was prepared to uh, to give them some direct quotations if they met with our approval and, uh, and, ha- and just had sort of a long form discussion with them, which I thought was pretty, pretty uh, productive. Uh, you know, I, I laid out my my case and my experience, uh, but. I was kind of struck that when I and you and I have had numerous conversations about you know things that I brought and and the impacts that I've suffered, uh, there was they were just void of any sort of emotion when I introduced those to the conversation and they were just kind of, oh okay, moving on and uh, and just became very apparent that this was going to be a, a hit piece. But fortunately for me, Rachel was able to sort of uh, shape that from CNN, and then I also had uh, outreach from. Rolling Stone and Washington Post, which I did not respond to. Jason Foster and Rachel were both uh, working on those as well. George, did you read all the pieces that uh, that were reported on you? Some of them obviously just went without comment from you and, and went directly to the, uh, the the Democrats in the House's document, which is over 300 pages long. Seems a little bit excessive. But did you read all these things and get a sense of fairness? I did. And could you rank I them did. in order of fairness? Is there a, a fair piece that um, articulates it? It just goes from bad to worse. 
um, with the Rolling Stone, obviously, uh, being at the, uh, the pinnacle of the worst pyramid. Um, I now, mean, just, just, just to, to jump in there. Are you a musician by chance? Uh, no. So no. the Rolling Stone doesn't care about music anymore. They're just interested in, um, in just political hackery. Is that, is that what they do? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, all I had to, you know, I'm quite familiar with the, the hit job they did on general Petraeus, um, years ago. Um, so anytime they rear their ugly head, I tend to go walk in the other direction. And, um, um, you know, they did a puff piece on Jaharson Arev, which I have a, a very intimate relationship. having been on that leadership position in that task force that, that brought that to a successful death penalty conclusion. Um, yeah, I, I have no interest in talking to the Rolling Stone because they're not engaged in journalism. Um, I think yellow journalism would be, um, you know, disrespectful to people who have engaged in yellow journalism. <laughs> they like uh, they like fake rape cases out of universities. That's that seems like that too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is what the, the Duke story is that right? That they they basically fabricated. University of Virginia. University of Virginia. Okay. Was yeah. it, wasn't there one in Duke too? That was that. Yeah, there was. That was lacrosse. Yeah. The lacrosse yeah. team. Okay. I was don't that, know what Rolling Stone did that one. Yeah. Was that legit or not legit? No, both were hoaxes. Interesting. Um, so facts, not really relevant to the story. They don't want to let facts get in the way of a good story. Correct. Correct. They, and they don't, you know, they can always just go back and correct the story when nobody's paying attention and say, mea culpa. Now eyes over here. Look, yeah, girl. corrections mean nothing. True, and they and they want to get the uh, the initial whatever their their puff story is. It's not like they're out there retweeting the links to the corrections. Is that that's sort of the because Steve, you brought that up to me earlier just before we talked. You're like they've they've issued corrections on some of these stories. I saw the corrections; they were a little bit light, I think. Um, and they they didn't correct the story; they left the story as is, and they just put a little asterisk paragraph in the beginning that says something like, "Oh, we have a correction." Um, Steve actually didn't say the thing or did say the thing, whatever it was that they were trying to correct, but. They didn't change their yeah. actual piece. Yeah, yes meant no. Our bad. Fair enough. Um, and I'm sure Phil's showing these pieces as necessary and bringing them up. So I'm going to just keep carrying on here. We're going to go to the actual document, which is what uh, I think these folks would refer to as their source document for a lot of the allegations they brought against both of you, um, particularly if they didn't get direct comments from you. And uh, the title of this document, which was released on March 2nd of 2023, so just a couple of days ago, is GOP Witnesses, colon, what their disclosures indicate about the state of the Republican investigations. So we've already decided these are Republican investigations because everything has to be partisan. Um, I'm curious, are you a registered Republican, Steve? I, I can't remember if we talked about that. Uh, I registered this past uh, midterm so I could vote for Ron DeSantis for governor. Strong. Uh, but before that, I was registered Libertarian Party. I was not happy with the LP uh, presence in the state of Florida. So at the time that you actually made your whistleblower allegations, you were not a registered Republican. Is that the timeline? No, no, I have not been registered Republican before I moved to Florida. Uh, but it, it, yeah, at that time, I was not even it, we're talking about the, the midterm election in November. And I so November of uh, yeah late 2022. Now, what's funny is I think you and I had that conversation right away. And I, I think we had the same interest in 2016 for president and then maybe the same in, in 2020. Um, George, out of curiosity, are you registered with one party over another? Um, in the state where I live, you can actually register as an independent, which gives you the lawful right to vote in either party's uh, primary. OK, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a registered independent. Yeah. Uh, when I became of age a um, hundred years ago, I registered as a Republican and uh, 
Um, but uh, since moving here uh, to my current legal state of residence, I am a uh, registered independent. Have either of you guys voted for parties other than the Republican Party in any elections? Just sort of curious. Lifetime. Yes, a lot. Okay, fair enough. I don't mean to get too specific, but I think it's worth because they're they're making some very specific allegations, and we'll get into what that narrow scope is. George, if you're comfortable answering that too, I'm curious. Sure. Um, so voting Republican in, in this state is a waste of time. Um, so typically, I vote Democrat for whoever the disruptor is. Okay. So that's a that's a firm yes though, right? I mean that is essentially you're trying to you're trying to choose the lesser of two evils, which I think most people do anyway. Um, but in the state of Massachusetts, the lesser of two evils may have to like the probable lesser is going to be a Democrat, is what you're kind of leading towards. Always. Yeah. I mean the Republicans never move the needle up here. Okay. I, I like that because it leads into some of the points that they've made, they've alleged against you. Um, we don't have Garrett O'Boyle, who is a, a mutual friend of Steve and I, but um, I, at some point he will be able to kind of defend himself. And uh, I think people will be also surprised, maybe not surprised, but they will find a similarly independent mind uh, in, in him. And he's one of the, he's the third of the three. So I'm going to just going to read the beginning of this, uh, this opening, and I'm going to pause intermittently whenever you guys, if you, if one of you guys feels, uh, compelled to, to let something fly out, let's do that. But, uh, it says forwarded by the ranking members, this, the ranking members in this case are Gerald Nadler, um, Jerry Nadler, who I've affectionately referred to as the penguin. And, uh, and then also Stacy, uh, Pasquet, Pasquet. I don't even know her Plasket. She comes from the Virgin Islands representation, even though she's from Brooklyn. So that sounds about right. So here's the story. It says, this partisan investigation, we're going to just start right off the bat with partisan. This partisan investigation, such as it is, rests in large part on what Chairman Jordan, that's Jim Jordan, described as, quote unquote, dozens and dozens of whistleblowers coming to us, talking about what is going on, the political nature at the Justice Department. To date, the House Judiciary Committee has held transcribed interviews with three of these individuals. Obviously, you are two of those three. Jim Jordan's committee has, of course, refused to name any other of the quote-unquote dozens and dozens who may have spoken to him. I like that it's a may have, like he's like he's known to lie about this. Um, he's also refused to share any of the documents uh, with these individuals, which these individuals provided the committee. Nevertheless, based on the interviews of these three, we're going to make some wide-ranging conclusions, and we're going to draw striking conclusions about the state of the Republican investigation. Uh, and so here they are. In, and there are four of them, you all, so we can stop at each one. Number one, first, the individuals that we have met with, in fact, are not whistleblowers. And they use that uh, the scare quotes around whistleblowers. These individuals who have put forward a wide range of conspiracy theories did not present actual evidence of any wrongdoing at the Department of Justice uh, or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI. So we'll call it FBI from here on out, and I assume. Uh, gents, are you guys, in fact, federal whistleblowers? I'll start with Steve. Cause you're on my left. I, I'm working left to right on my screen here. Yeah, I think we, uh, we, we meet the statute, uh, and, uh, there's certain elements of that. You have to have a reasonable belief of waste, fraud, abuse, or unnecessary risk to public safety. You have to bring those concerns forward to the proper authorities. I did those things in that order. So I think I actually meet the black letter definition of whistleblower. Okay. And, uh, what about you, George? As do I same, same. Same, same. Phil, do you mind uh, bringing up the Cornell Law piece and maybe you can read it? I'm bringing it up here as well. Let's read um, Let's read what the actual requirement is. So that's going to be uh, 5 U.S.C. 2303. It's going to be Section A, Subsection 2, which describes what a, a whistleblower has to do, if you don't mind. Sure. 
So let's see here. Subsection two, which the employer applicant reasonably believes evidences A, any violation of any law, rule, or regulation, or B, gross mismanagement, a gross waste of funds, an abuse of authority, or a substantial and specific danger to public health or safety. All right. So there's two fundamental parts of it, Steve. It looks like uh, even your memory is able to, you know, sort of grab both of those pieces. One of them is going to be violation of law, rule, or policy. That's going to be on the, um, you know, things that happen inside. Sorry, it's not uh, law, rule, policy. It's law, rule, or regulation. That's what the the status is. So rule tends to follow the word policy. These are going to be things that are internal to an agency that you work with if the agency goes against itself. And the next one is like misusing fraud, uh, misusing funds, uh, generally known as fraud, waste, and abuse statutes, which we people in the military are going to be familiar with. Most local law enforcement have heard these. We're using monies in ways we ought not to and so on. And then the substantial danger to the public in health or safety that doesn't really play into ours necessarily. Um, Mine does. Okay, fair enough. I'm gonna have you. I'm gonna have you uh, get deeper into that. The second thing is, is there's a um, a you said an appropriate um, authority that you have to make this disclosure to, and um, I'm gonna read them out, and then I'd like you each to tell us which one of those you did, and then we'll get into the substance of each of those allegations. So um, under um, 2303, section A, subsection one, there's a whole list, and they go A through they go alpha through hotel. So one of them is going to be. Uh, in the case of an employee, you can do it to a supervisor in your chain all the way up to the head of the agency. So you could go anywhere from your SSA all the way up to Chris Ray. You can make an allegation to the inspector general. You can go to the Office of Professional Responsibility at DOJ. You can go to the Office of Professional Responsibility at the FBI. By the way, this is the FBI whistleblower statute. So it's very specific to the FBI. We have our whole our own law here. Um, section E is going to be the inspection division, which is a, a internal watchdog within the FBI in theory. Um Section F is going to be as described by Section uh, 7211. We'll describe that in just a second. Uh, G is going to be the Office of Special Counsel, if there is a special counsel that is that is convened. And then the last is to an employee designated by any officer, employee, office, or division as described in A through G, which is to say that anybody can delegate their responsibilities if they are one of these named groups, like the Inspector General can have a reception for these kind of things. Um, 7211. Do you know what 7211 refers to, Steve? Isn't that congressional? It is. Yeah. It says that every member of the federal government is able to go to Congress. Um, you know, and this is something that we obviously dealt with when Merrick Garland put out a memo saying that you had to go through the Office of Congressional Affairs. That's contrary to what federal law says. Who did you go through uh, for your allegations specifically? So we're going to meet this this burden of whistleblower status here. Uh, I made my disclosures to my SSA, two of my ASACs, okay. my SAC, the special counsel, the inspector general, uh, three senators, and two congressmen. Okay, so that's going to be, say you went through section A, which is going to be people within your chain of command. You said the inspector general, that's going to be section Bravo. Um, you didn't go to OPR or uh, OPR. You didn't go to inspection. You did go to congresspeople, which is section F, and G, which is the office of the special counsel. So a smattering, a shotgun blast of the various uh, options you had for reporting. George, where did you do your, because you did it after you were retired, is that correct? Kind of, sort of. I was on, um, the military calls it terminal leave. Mm -hmm. um, I was just burning up the leave that I had acquired while I, uh, while I was in the Bureau. And um, so I actually reached out to Jordan's office um, in August, who was the ranking minority member at that time. Um, 
But prior to that, when the incident first occurred, I made it aware to my direct supervisor, which is a supervisory senior supervisory intelligence analyst, ASAC equivalent GS-15, and um, got the Heisman there. Um, because essentially, we did, we in my particular case, the office did the right thing by not opening up cases. Um, however, subsequent to that contact, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure from Washington field office to uh, either dual tag cases as domestic terrorism or and, and as I testified or was deposed that um, we were being pressured to open up cases without predication. Um, so I was already on leave. Um, I could have went back into the building, uh, you know, and, and pushed it again. But considering how uh, I was rebuffed the first time, um, I felt that uh, between raising it to my direct supervisor and also to Director Ray in my employee survey, um, that I was left with no other recourse but to go to uh, a representative of Congress on, on that committee. Um, and I chose the minority member because um, the uh, chair of that committee, uh, I believe it was uh, Congressman Nadler of New York, um, didn't seem to have much interest um, in the topic. That's fair. So you're once again fitting, um, as far as these categories, you're fitting category alpha, which is people in your chain of command all the way up to and including the head of the agency, and then section F as described by 7211, a member of Congress or congressional staff. Um, I'm curious because I know that I had to do some digging to be able to reach out and get access to um, Jim Jordan's office and people within it. In fact, I ended up going through a different person. How did you make contact through there? What, what was your route? Did you just use the website or whatever? No, I just called the 202 area code number and uh, left my name, contact information, uh, gave him my credential number, um, you know, to know that it wasn't some crackpot calling in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure they did their, their, their yeah. I'm sure they did their due diligence and saw that, yes, that credential number actually does exist. And yes, it actually is tied to George Hill. And uh, they contacted me and we had a series of phone calls uh, discussing in detail my observations. Fantastic. What um, what month and year was that? I don't need the specific day per se, but when did that when did you initiate that? I think August 2022. Okay, so same as Steve. So at that point, had you been hearing about other whistleblowers coming forward? Is that something that spurred you into action or was it something that you just knew you were going to be doing? You know, I'd like to say that I was aware of other whistleblowers, but I had not. That was not my that was not my motivation. It was um, um, even though I wasn't involved in it at that time because I had already was on terminal leave. The dot edu threat tag uh, was what pushed me over the edge. Like this is. Somebody needs to know about what's been going on. So the EDU officials threat tag, and I'm going to get to you in just a second here, Steve. Um, the EDU officials threat tag, that was an email you probably received. Is that correct? Coming in from Carlton Peoples down the chain of command? That's for Steve, right? No, no, that's for you, George. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I was already out. I, I was already on terminal leave, um, but I heard about it. Got it. Uh through the news. So that's what pushed me over the edge. Okay. That's, that's just interesting to me. Um, this kind of the time frame of how things come out, but you weren't necessarily aware of other whistleblowers. I think that also is, you know, I think some people were motivated because what, are the, what they heard other things that were happening, but, um, a lot of people had to have been independently motivated. And I think we saw that over and over cause we don't know all the groups 
I, I keep telling people, I think there's a lot of nodes of people that are having these conversations and are, are upset by them. Steve, well, it, go ahead. Just before you go to Steve, just I just want to sharpen the point that you just made, which is that um, at least in my office, people are afraid to talk to one another. Mm-hmm. What what fear before we uh, leave that? What what fear were they? You know, concrete things or just the the nebulous fear of uh, you speak out, you get crushed, kind of thing. Well, you speak out, you get crushed, but it it the sides became apparent when uh, then President Trump fired Jim Comey. And it was all very clear uh, the very next day um, where people in, in the Boston office stood um, and who the never Trumpers were and who the uh, people who were more inclined to go, you know, where evidence and the rule of law takes them. So there were quickly um, all sorts of, you know, memes and Comey is my homie posters uh, around the office. And if you did kind of like um, with Kramer on Seinfeld, you know, if you weren't wearing a ribbon, it's like, why won't you, why, where's your, where's your Comey is my homie, uh, you know, on your office door or on your cubicle wall. Um, so it became very visually apparent um, within 24 hours where most of the office stood. And if you weren't wearing the ribbon, you were ostracized. Yeah, the ribbon, I think, in that that episode was like an AIDS ribbon or something to that effect. And yeah. it was an AIDS march, right? So famous episode yeah. of Seinfeld, uh, people, you can go find it. I actually had someone yell at me on Twitter about it. They're like, Kyle, why won't you wear the ribbon? But it's a it's a, it's a a cultural metaphor that I think we've adopted over the years. It was such an impactful show for so much of the cultural dialogue. Steve, did you, uh, just because I want to just follow that down a little bit, did you ever see Comey is My Homie uh, coffee mugs or any of those things? Uh, you know, I was in like a three or four person RA just doing happened. real work. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only, uh, and we, we actually would joke about Hatch Act. So like if anybody said anything, we just Hatch Act, Hatch Act, can't talk about it. Um, and the only guy that didn't give a rip was the one who had the Bernie Sanders action figure on his desk. Oh, interestingly enough. Was it, uh, was it a, because he really supported Bernie or it was because yeah. he, someone gave him an action figure and he liked action figures. Oh, he liked action figures. He had a lot of them, but he had the Bernie Sanders action figure next to the Bernie Sanders memoir. That was, you know, sort of the, the soft launch of the 2020 campaign. Wow. I don't want to get derailed because I have a funny story about a roommate who was really into action figures that was like a grown man. But um, Phil, I know you spent a lot of time at Washington Field. Washington Field, probably notoriously one of the more political offices, as are a number of them on the East Coast. Um, Comey is my homie. Do we see that hanging out? I, I was so new to the Washington Field office at the time when Comey was removed that I don't feel like I, I really grasped that at the time. I never saw that, but I did hear stories of headquarters employees after the election in 08 uh, displaying their Obama propaganda inside their cubicles and places like that. And the rebuttal to uh, any confrontation over that was, hey, it's just we're proud. This is all about pride. Which and is, so it was allowed. Which is both a um, it's just one of the deadly sins, but also one of the 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 rights of the secular left for some reason. I did hear stories about people having like full-size cutouts of President Obama and they would put them up after he left office because it's no longer a hatch act violation because he's now he's now he's just a historical figure, which was my rationale for having a funny picture of Donald Trump standing on a tank carrying a bazooka. I just find that funny. I think bazookas are funny. I think a golden tank is funny. I think Donald Trump can be funny. He has some like 
amusing and it really triggered people so i put it up right next to where the copy machine was because they put me in this little corner where nobody could see me so if you came around the corner to use the poppy machine you would just see trump riding a tank and then um because i think it's the brother of that that cartoon ronald reagan riding on a velociraptor i don't know if you guys ever saw that one but he's shooting like two uzis at once right <laughs> fantastic men in suits riding dinosaurs all silliness you know not a serious political statement it's more of like a ridiculous statement and uh and i'm sure that upset people so but there's well, somebody there's somebody figures. within the bureau i don't know whether it was hrd but there it, it wasn't just specific to my office someone had put out some guidance basically saying you need to pull that stuff down the the trump stuff or the Obama? the the comey is my homie okay uh, it, it it could have been my office i i don't remember it was, it was a long time ago yeah no if it had come out from hrd i know i would have read it because i didn't do anything except look at fisa yeah, it might have been in the office yeah. might have been just in the office all um I <laughs> all i did was read policy emails and get bored so i know that i didn't see that i've got a creepy memory for that but that is something that's neat to note and i do like that you're always a balls and strikes guy so folks, if you haven't heard our interview with George Hill, I'll, I'll recommend you go back and listen to that. Um, we did a long form interview about just the nature of what intelligence means, what national security is. I think that he's uh, influenced my thinking the way that works. And uh, and he's a balls and strikes guy. Like when you know, when the Bureau did a good thing, and, it, and I know we're going to talk about the Bureau did the right thing, at least in one instance in your office, you gave him credit for it. And in fact, Boston area newspapers called that out and said, thank God, you know, like our office did the right thing. There's not a lot of transparency within the FBI. So- the value of bringing you guys on is you get it shed a little bit of light, sometimes on the good, sometimes on the bad, but we're not just, I don't only need to hear about the bad. I want to know about the good because we all have friends that still work in the bureau. And I want to know that there are people that are doing good things. If you want to- yeah, I'm surprised that um, the people who wrote these hit pieces didn't pick that article up written by the notorious Howie Carr saying that, you know, Boston did the right thing. Apparently that missed their scrutiny. It did. Let's, let's just go to it. It's uh, talk about what they did right and where that allegation fell in your testimony. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll maybe di dissect it, why they, why it failed to make the, uh, the, the more notorious, uh, CNN and WAPO and things like that. So it was two of the substantive matters discussed, uh, during my deposition, both with the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, the first one was the bank of America list that was generated without, um, any, without any known prodding from the FBI where they data mined their customer base and pulled out everyone that had a Bank of America product that used that product in the DC metropolitan area between five and seven January of 2020. And then anyone who was already, who made that list was then moved to the top of the list if they had ever purchased a firearm. And then the claim that was made against me by, um, uh, CNN and Rolling Stone, New York Times, is that I had not seen the list. And I had not seen the master list that generated it all. However, I did see the list of names that was generated through an EC, an electronic communication, and, and it set forth as a lead to Boston. So no, when you open up a case, you can restrict what people can see. You can set uh criteria on there that you're notified if someone's you know looking around your case or you can just close it completely or you can hide it completely on sentinel which i forget exactly steve might remember he's a little newer than me um how you can keep people from looking at it um but no that, that's 
that it was a flat out lie that I had not seen the list. I had not seen the master list. So they chose to get cute with the words uh, on the interview or well, the interview that I didn't do. And then the other matter was 140 people who were going to take two buses down to D.C. Uh, for the rally of First Amendment protected activity. And Washington field office wanted us to open up cases on the bus riders to which we said, well, what's the predication? Um, you know, what did they do? Well, they were in the Capitol. Oh, okay. Well, could you show us some pictures of, uh, you know, any video or still of them in the Capitol in an area where they're not supposed to be. And the reply that we got back was, is that, um, it may, um, we don't want to jeopardize, it may jeopardize the identities of individuals and, and we need to protect that. Um, so one can infer all sorts of things for that, but I'm not going to. That's what they said. That's, you know, what I heard. Um, that, so was what, was, that was the Washington are, field pushback, correct? That They pushed back yes. saying that we don't want to identify certain individuals or we might be, we might compromise the identities of yeah. certain individuals. Yeah. No further information. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. No further information. They didn't say anything more beyond that. And Howie Carr is a kind of a, you know, a Boston uh, celebrity, um, has a long history of going after the FBI. And he tried to take me down this rabbit hole uh, of saying, well, who are those people that are, whose identity they're trying to protect? And I'm not going there because I don't know. Right. You know, be, I, I only, yeah, I don't want to be. I testified of what I know. I testified on what I heard with my own ears or what I saw with my own eyes, not my speculation, not my opinion, not any analysis based on whatever. It's just what I know. Give me a sec here because I'm going to read from the document that with the uh, the Democrats put. This is their their smear on you. Witness George Hill, who retired from the Boston field office as a supervisory intelligence analyst in October 2021, claimed to have learned that a financial institution provided the FBI with evidence it believed may be relevant to January 6th capital attack investigations. He had no knowledge of the actual origins of the supposed evidence. You've just said that was false. You didn't have no knowledge of it. You just hadn't seen the document, which is not which is not unusual if you are getting a lead, which we'll talk about in a second, what that actually looks like mechanically. I think that's relevant. Um, And never used the evidence himself. That doesn't sound accurate. And then he never looked at the actual document containing the information. That's the same statement. In fact, he did not even work on January 6th cases himself. At most, he supervised intelligence analysts who did research in support of less than a dozen cases. They cite a footnote, which we can go to if we need to. Uh, Committee Democrats cannot reasonably find this testimony reliable. In any event, that a large financial institution may have provided evidence to the FBI in the aftermath of the attack on the Capitol is hardly newsworthy and certainly not evidence of FBI misconduct. Let's dig into any of those pieces that seem relevant to you right there. So as far as my supervising analysts that that investigated less than a dozen cases, my analysts didn't investigate any J6 cases because we said no to, to those J6 cases. So I don't. I don't know where they came up with that. Steve, did you um, did you ever see uh, analysts actually run a case? Do they do they get to open cases? No, they do not. But they can participate in them. Yes. Are they listed as case managers ever? Never. George, you ever see them listed as case managers, or are they just participants? No, they're they're, they're not. That's not the role. Because the analysts are not investigators, right? Like that's no. the that's the delineation that we're we're drawing here is that analysts right. are support to investigative activities. In various ways. 
Right. I mean, that statement is not just inaccurate. It's it's fabricated out of whole cloth. It, it, it's just a it's a total 100 percent fabrication. It's not even in it's not it doesn't even meet the criteria of inaccurate. <laughs> so uh, a man who is precise with his words, um, I think it's interesting that they think that your testimony cannot reasonably cons- be considered reliable. I'm going to let the listeners make their own decisions. And uh, and they already know what I think, because I've brought you on twice here and I like what you have to say. Um We'll get to, I'm going to do one more piece of it. And then Steve, I'm going to go into the two primary claims that they wanted to debase you on. I appreciate you being patient with me. It says Hill also alleged that the Washington field office, WFO, um, also known as worst field office, asked the Boston field office to assist in running particular January 6th related investigative leads. He admitted that he was not actually privy to those conversations and said further, uh, said further that as far as he knew, Boston exercised independent judgment and declined to pursue those leads. Again, his testimony is based on secondhand knowledge. Again, even standing alone, the underlying allegation does not actually show either misconduct or weaponization of the government. Uh, Let's talk about what you know about what Washington does. And like, this sounds like people who don't understand the FBI. I mean, we already know that that's who was interviewing you. Um, Take that, take that paragraph apart for me a little bit, if you would. Yes, I don't know where they come up with secondhand. Um, so, and there was a lot of questions from the Democrat attorney trying to, um, uh, I guess, determine credibility uh, or, or the depth of my credibility regarding the statement. Like, why would I have this level of interaction? How would I, how would I come about this knowledge that I pro- profess to have? And keeping it short, working with a, a, an SSA counterpart who runs the domestic terrorism squad. Um, he and I would have daily conversations at least once a week face-to-face. And so when these issues came up surrounding J6, you know, it, you know, I'd say, well, did you see this? Or he would say, did you see that? And well, let's call him, you know, let, you know, or swing the computer screen around. Let's take a look at the lead. Um, so, it's, I, I don't know how they get to second hand. Um, I was one of two people having a conversation. I, I don't know if that qualifies as second hand. Um, but I, I just, again, they're, they're just making stuff up. Can you explain, because people's visibility to the Bureau is going to be limited to what we share with them, what a lead is, what it looks like. I'll let Steve uh, kind of embellish it after you kind of give your your take on it, because there's probably the more people who look at it can can understand it better. But what is a lead? Where does it come from? How do you receive it? What is the format? You know, is it written? Is it is it a, a carrier pigeon? Is it a dark? Sure. All that kind of thing. So a lead has to start from there has to be a case. Okay. Um, it can be a uh, a preliminary investigation or a full field investigation, but in order to electronically generate a lead, there has to be one of those two, either preliminary or a full field investigation. A lead is a formal term. It it has, you know, and in in layman's terms, it means kind of like I'm giving you a to-do, like you need to do this. You need to take some sort of action here. Um, I'm not going to tell you the details of that action, but in this particular case, they're asking in the form of a lead to take investigative action on seven individuals or 140 individuals. So, and what is the, an yeah, what's the analyst um, end of that? Cause I know what the agent is and Steve's going to speak to that. What is the analyst end? If you're the manager, so the your- analyst could actually get a lead from that lead okay, as well. And Sentinel saying, Hey, um, 
do open source research on these individuals or um, find out how much, you know, do open source research on these individuals, do open source research on who organized the bus trip to DC, how much did they charge, where were they meeting, like, you know, standard um, background information that may be part of an investigation. So let's use the bus ride as an example um, to, to, to hopefully make it clear to the listener. Um, the lead comes in and says, you need to open up cases on these because there's already a case out there because the the people who organized it were already being charged. And one of them's already been convicted. The other, I believe, is still pending. This is the people uh, who organized the bus trip, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, because there was evidence. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing that we'd like to have uh, at, at the FBI, ideally, Um so there's already a case. So they just generate another lead off of that. They, meaning Washington field office, and say, hey, you need to investigate these people who took the bus. So let's say we were going to do that. So then the, the supervisor then would, would then cut a lead to, to my squad, you know, or to the analyst on his squad and say, you need to uh, investigate or not investigate, um, do open source research on these people. Um, you know, these are some of the things we need to know, you know, when was the bus to depart? When did it come back? Did 140 people go down? Did 140 people go back? How much did they pay for it? Did they get any outside funding from any groups? You know, those kind of things. So in the layman's term, a lead is, hey, you need to do this because it'll help me in my investigation. Fair enough. Steve. Layman's yeah, no, totally understood. Uh, and Steve, thanks for your patience. I know you've been part of many interviews and interrogations, so I know you're patiently able to sit and and hold thoughts. What I'd like to know is, can you articulate what it takes to open either a preliminary or a full investigation? What sort of information has to be available uh, in order to open a criminal case on something like that? Uh, there has to be a predicate that the alleged offense was committed. It can't just be, uh, it has to be something that's articulable. Reasonable okay. suspicion. So I've I always can't just be. Yeah, I've always know, my, my, I, I, my neighbor seems like a bad guy. Right, not um, not credible. That's just that's just somebody saying words. We need an articulable. Um, I always say like an allegation or information that a federal crime has occurred. Is that a tight yeah, enough version of that? Yeah, I mean it's 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 not beyond reasonable doubt. No. the threshold is is pretty low, but uh, it can't just be uh, you know some sort of vapid allegation. There has to actually be something substantive there that we need to resource and investigate. And and there might even be something that's worthy of investigation. We just don't have the ability, the bandwidth to handle it. Which happens all the time. You get something that's either too low to meet the threshold for the uh, United States Attorney's Office to be interested in, or you know because of previous experience, you brought them a case of fraud for $30,000 and they said, we only take million dollar fraud cases. So we're really sorry. We don't have the bandwidth for that, whatever it may be, right? Or there's special circumstances yeah. that make that something else egregious. The fraud also had some other additional crime. So you can maybe bring it to under those things. So there's some discretion that's involved in covering a lead on the agent end, correct? Yeah. I mean, in the way that I've always explained a lead is like, there's, there's a lot of people. Um, if this is a, a very efficient cost-effective way to get work done that maybe the, the people that are, you know, handling and running a case can't get done. So if, if you're working a case in Washington, DC and you an interview conducted in Daytona beach, like why would you hop on a Southwest flight 
and do an interview when you can just give me a lead and I'll go do it for you because we have the same arrest authorities, we have the same uh, training, uh, and you're going to expect me to be a professional and go do that for you and get it done quickly. Um, this is going to segue, I think, nicely into your particular claims. I'm going to scroll down and read a couple pieces that they made about you in particular. Um, but would you agree that uh, FBI agents and then also analysts, when they have been subtasked with leads, have a lot of discretion in the way they address the um, the investigative activities that are logical to them? Yes. And, and I think probably the most apropos thing that I was ever told about it was by a supervisor that said, you need to treat the lead like it's your case and handle it professionally and, and handle it with care. Don't just mail it in. But also another part of that is act like it's your case. So you have the authority and the, and the latitude to, to carry it forward as you see fit. And if it's not there, then you also have the authority to dismiss leads. Yes. Yes. Have you dismissed leads when you were uh, working for the Bureau? Yes, I have. How many do you think? What percentage? Um, I mean, it's less than the majority of, the, of them because, you know, most of the leads that I got were, you know, for small asks to either, you know, serve a, serve a subpoena or something like that, which is very simple. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had leads to, to do to, and identify potential victims of uh, sexploitation uh, th that weren't, weren't accurate. So I just sent it back and said, you know, there's dry hole. Sorry. Sometimes you can't actually even do it. Like the information doesn't even justify now. If I had told you, hey, uh, there's a guy that lives in your AOR somewhere and his name is George Hill. And he really thought Reagan was a fantastic president. And because of that, I'm pretty sure he was at January 6th causing trouble. Would that be something that you would go out and investigate? No, that's a zero file. That's uh, you, you, you kindly say like that. That's not a uh, predicate for an investigation. And uh, first amendment protected activity. And we don't investigate that. Okay. And I dismissed several at least a hundred, maybe more, maybe several hundred of those that came in through Washington Field because Washington Field was getting all these "quote unquote" tips out of end talk. So, um, and anybody, Steve, anyone can look at my old ones on that. Kyle, yep. I mean, for our listener, for your listeners, mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's clear to be precise in our language. We don't just dismiss them or blow them off. There's actually a formal process yep. where you close the leads. So there, there's a record, and and you can't just say, "Oh, this is baloney." close you know and, and close the lead um like in our case uh for the bus we said this is first amendment protected activity no further action required and and that's actually referred to as covering the lead covering the lead could mean you did some investigative activity you did some and found out there was no further activity or that you did none because it was inappropriate based on policy or law yeah right but we just don't you don't just blow it off i mean exactly. act, it's just like yes. a circle but you start to draw that line it goes all the way around and it has to be closed off. It may be a big circle or a small circle, but it still has to be closed off. I think that's a really good point. And the individual who cut the lead or sent the lead to you gets notification on what your actions were based on that. Yeah, exactly. So there's a formal record of what is done. Yeah. So I think that's actually a really excellent point. They exist within the FBI's uh, computer system, which we've made reference to. It's called Sentinel. That's the case file system. And it's the same thing we use for doing both intelligence investigations and doing criminal investigations. It's used to, you know, export discovery for legal process and so on. And it gets sent off to other attorneys. So this is a system on the FBI's classified network, but a lot of it is unclassified and it, it's a back and forth. It's a uh, collaborative tool. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good word. All right. So Steve, I'm going to read the witness claims against you. And then I'd like you to address them. Um, I know these are not going to be new to you, but uh, here we go. So witness Stephen Friend, by the way, um, one of the one of the uh, folks 
they spelled your name wrong in the piece a couple of times. They spelled your yeah, name with a V. Did they, you notice they, they that? They pulled an L fewer. It, it bothered me. <laughs> it bothers my mom. Yeah. She chose your name on purpose, I'm sure. Although you do throw people off by being Steve V-E and then also spelling your full name, Stephen P-H. How, how would I be Steve with a P-H? Would it just be drop the N? Steve. Yeah. Steve. Just drop the N. What's wrong with you? All right. Uh, witness Stephen Friend made two primary claims. All right. First. Friend claimed that the FBI departed from its internal operations manual as it managed hundreds of cases after January, uh, the January 6th Capitol attack. Friend brought this claim to the Justice Department Inspector General and the Office of the Special Counsel. Both rejected the claim. Hold it. I know you're there. Um, the Office of the Special Counsel noted in its rejection letter that the FBI policy explicitly allows for departure from the manual in certain circumstances. Friend admitted he had no knowledge of any discussion that the FBI leadership had related to the departure from that manual, and he couldn't clearly explain why such a departure might be harmful. I am sure you have some thoughts. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, the fact that I can't clearly explain why we're departing from the rules is sort of a problem. Um seeing as how when you do make the decision to depart from rules, you have to document it. And that wasn't available to me. And so when I asked the question, nobody could ever provide for me an answer as to why we were not following Appendix J of the Diog. Okay. So there are rules that you know there was a departure, but no justification for that departure. Correct. Correct. There was, um, they essentially made January 6th, a uh, one case became a different case for every single subject. And instead of running them from Washington, uh, which was supposed to be, it's in their area of responsibility, they elected to assign them to the field uh, wherever the subject resided, which is allowable within the uh, within the Diog. However, because the Washington field office was running all these cases through their January 6th task force, that was the departure. There were not giving the uh, the offices and the case agents who were assigned in the field who were supposed to have the responsibility for seeing the investigations all the way through as they saw fit, um, they were still answering to Washington, D.C., which is the departure. So, um, and for our listeners and our viewers, this is a very technical discussion on purpose. Uh, we're having a technical discussion because the word whistleblower has a meaning. It's not somebody who feels that the FBI is bad, okay, and then writes a book about it. That's not a thing. And it's not because I, why I left the FBI and I want to get on Fox and talk to you that the FBI is bad and I'm sad that I don't work there anymore. That's not a whistleblower. A whistleblower is someone who meets the criteria of the, of the law, as we stated, uh, under uh, Title V of the United States Code, and then has credible and specific allegations. So this is a technical case that we're laying out for you all on purpose. And I know it's a little bit pedantic in some ways, but I think it's necessary for you to understand that when they make a 300 plus page claim, and we're only on the fourth page here, I they're they're wrong about the, even their opening. And the reason that they're wrong is because they don't understand that these words have meanings. I want to um, to get specific about the rejection of your claims under the Inspector General and the Office of Special Counsel. Did they reject that your claims were? Um, credible or did they reject that they had the bandwidth to pick up the cases? What was the rejection notice that you got from those two different departments? Uh, I, I got basically like one page responses. Um, the uh, inspector general said that the FBI has latitude to depart from its rules. And uh, because there, they weren't going to resource it, but they didn't consider the legitimacy or if I, what I was saying was in fact true. Uh, and, and the special counsel also decided that they weren't going to resource my complaint. Uh, 
for whatever reasons that they had. I had discussions with their attorney to just sort of meet the threshold if it was something, but similar to our investigative work, I, what I might be saying is appropriately, you know, and, and meets the the criteria to be investigated, but uh, they have a limited resources, limited attorneys, and they decided to to place them elsewhere. I think it's important to note that I had a similar experience with the, uh, the inspector general, I think it was the office inspector general. Yeah. It's the OIG. And when I went to them, I made credible allegations that my, my boss, which I had plenty of evidence of, and they actually reviewed it and said, yeah, your evidence is good that my boss was violating federal employment laws by telling me I had to come back into work when I was on sick leave, um, lest I lose my job. That was the, the, the threat. Um, that's not something that is, there's no provision for that under federal law. And they said, uh, you can probably understand we've got bigger fish to fry right now. I think those are the actual words they used. And that bigger fish had a name and the name was Andy McCabe. So they were in the middle of doing things that had, you know, national level significance. And the fact that my supervisor was a bad boss and saying things illegal, but I didn't have, you know, she didn't take my job. I just had to leave my sick kid for a day. Um, that sort of thing didn't rise to the level of their threshold in the same way that sometimes we don't pursue fraud cases for 35,000 because our threshold is 50 or a hundred or whatever. So once again, broad discretion, I think it's important to note that have you ever, um, I'm going to pivot just a little bit more. Have you ever had an operation where someone told you to go do something and you asked, what are my legal authorities to do that? Have you ever had that discussion with the FBI? I don't know if everyone does. I'm just curious. Um, I, I, don't know if it was actually official. I think that they were the uh, executive management in my field office was getting spun up about something. Uh, I didn't raise that, but I know people along the chain said, I, I don't think we have the legal authority to do that. And it got nixed pretty quickly. But as far as you know, my my asks, I, uh, it was always based on, a, you know, execute this arrest warrant or a search warrant that signed, you know, documents. So it should be legal. Should be. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. Phil, can you um, can you elaborate on that? Because I know that SOG, we used to have this sort of thing where they would ask you to do something. But oftentimes the the question of whether or not we had legal authority was was worth debating. Yeah, sometimes it was very nebulous. And we we even had instances where they would tell us to follow someone. They were trying to keep it hush hush. And later on, you would find out, oh, actually, it's uh, someone inside the Beltway who they don't want their name getting leaked out. And that's why they didn't tell you. And it's only when the K squad came in weeks later to take the suspect into custody that you found out, oh yeah, that's a uh, relative of a highly visible politician in uh, the DC area. And that's why they didn't tell us, Were they doing, which often felt a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Were they doing crack cocaine off the floor um, while eating takeout pizza or was this somebody else? Probably someone very similar to the individual you're describing. Interesting. All right, fun. Um, so in my personal experience of it, I would get people, they would say like, under no circumstances can this individual go into a house and kill people, um, which is a really difficult legal authority to justify because it's like, <laughs> well, if I knew it was in his head, we would stop him, but I don't think we can know that. And so you have to actually wait for them to go do something like produce a weapon at the front doorstep yeah. of someone's house. And that's yeah. a really dangerous that's that's American freedom for you. It, there's some danger to it. So anyway, I, I just think it's worth noting that uh, the question of authorities and legal authorities to act is something that law enforcement officers need to be asking themselves regularly. So if you are a law enforcement officer or a federal officer who, who's listening to this, this is one of those things that you need to be courageous about asking, because oftentimes they'll be giving you things and there's no legal justification for doing it. I've seen it. Like I said, Phil's seen it. I think some people do and some people don't. I'm going to read the second Kyle? allegation here, please. Can I inject one thing about the Office of Inspector General, the OIG? They may have declined to pursue the investigating uh, my complaint, but they have a dual role. They're supposed to also investigate whether or not I suffered uh, retaliation as a whistleblower. 
that has not been rejected. That is still uh, up to them to to investigate. So any sort of implication that the OIG said you're not a whistleblower is completely false. I think they do like to make that point here, and I think they're I think they're mixing their message. Second piece that they wrote in this uh, your second point they stipulated that you failed to articulate well to them apparently. Uh, second friend objected to the use of SWAT teams in the arrest of certain January 6th subjects on August 24th, 2022. The subjects arrested that day are members of the 3% domestic extremist group. We'll get into that in just one second. On cross-examination, friend admitted that he was not a member of the SWAT team, that he did not participate in any decisions about the use of the SWAT team, did not review the SWAT team matrix, and was not certain which subjects the SWAT team would arrest. He acknowledged that the individuals arrested that day were known to the FBI to be armed and dangerous. He presented no evidence to suggest the FBI's decision to use the SWAT team was anything more than a precaution to protect FBI personnel and other law enforcement officers. And go. I'm, I feel like I'm like shooting a starter gun. This one's <laughs> got to get you riled up. Go. Yes, it does. Um, I uh, am an experienced SWAT operator, so I'm very familiar with the SWAT matrix. So the fact that I didn't look at it that day doesn't really matter. I, I haven't reviewed my birth certificate for a long time, but I'm fairly sure I know what my birthday is. Uh, I raise concerns that using SWAT for a cooperative subject may pose an unnecessary risk to FBI personnel as well as the public. And I laid out a litany of uh, alternative methods that I felt were uh, more appropriate, uh, but uh, were soundly rejected by my executive management. Were you a member so, of the SWAT and, team? And I, uh, not for Jacksonville. Okay. But I was for uh, prior to this. So I was experienced with the use of SWAT and typically when it is deployed. And it was not for subjects who have had conversations with the FBI during which they said, if you need anything, just check back with me. Are you, um, were you being asked to be part of that SWAT arrest? How, what was your role in that, that, that you were declined to be part of? So I was very specific with them. I said, look, I never reviewed the ops plan. I was told, so I can't say that I've seen it, but I was told my job was to transport the subject who was going to be arrested by the SWAT team, which again, um, I found sort of uh, curious because if I was a case manager or a case participant, you would think that I would be assigned to something, I don't know, a little more involved in the case than just being Uber to, to jail. But... Uh, Apparently that decision was made above my head, even though it was technically a case that I was supposed to be running. So this was your case, correct? Yes. And they wanted you to be transportation. Uh, generally, that's like a new agent job, people who have no other responsibilities because the case agent is doing things like looking at evidence, maybe setting up for an interview, things like that. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> okay. And how did they assign you to that role? Do you have any idea how you became the transport guy? I was not part of those conversations. Again, why not? Why wasn't anybody in my joint terrorism task force privy to that conversation? You know, we were waiting for essentially waiting for warrants to be cut from Washington, D.C. and being told, go forth and execute on your own case. So this was your case. You don't have any say in the operation of it. Someone else wrote the ops plan for it and they're running it out of D.C. That was essentially the meat of your allegation. Is it not that they were, in fact, not allowing you to run a case that is theoretically your case? Yes. Yes. And, and my fear with that is not, you know, like, look, if you want to do, do work for me and then give me credit for because my name's on it. I mean, like everybody's ambitious, but my fear was because we are departing from those rules, I felt that that information needed to be provided to a defendant as part of Brady material. 
And one, we weren't doing that, which is a violation. And if that ever came out, that would be a problem. But two, if we did provide that information, then it would leave us vulnerable in a trial situation where a defense attorney would ask me as a case participant or a case manager, agent friend, what did you do on this case that your name is on? And I would say nothing. I just followed orders, which would make my credibility go through the floor and could cost us a righteous prosecution. As I told the uh, Democrat attorneys when they identified this subject for me and showed me his picture wearing his helmet and tactical gear uh, that he was donning during January 6th, I said, look, it looks like a bad guy. He probably did some bad things and he should probably be prosecuted. It would be a shame if we lost at trial because we violated his civil rights. That's fair. Um, George, they bring up uh, domestic extremist group. How how familiar are you with uh, terrorist domestic terrorism investigations and and subjects thereof? Intimately, I I sort of assume that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the three percenters? And if necessary, I can read you the SPLC, uh, a known FBI source out of the Richmond field office, uh, and their definition of it. I'd be curious if you think that it uh, it lines. They claim that it's not a group, despite the Democrats' statement, but a sub ideology of a larger anti-government uh, militia movement. How accurate would you say that is? Um, well, it's not technically accurate at all um, as being a subgroup of a larger anti-government uh, movement. But to kind of backtrack just a little bit here in that, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, J6 subjects, all of the flack that, that Steve and I have, have taken have been all tied to the J6 narrative, mm -hmm. all of it, all of it. Right. Um, the use of SWAT, the use of opening up cases across all 56 field offices. Again, to be precise in my language, I don't have any evidence that there's some sort of coordinated effort to create a narrative. But if I were in the process, process of a psychological operation that's what i would be doing i would be saying that the three percenters are the van group or the vanguard of a larger anti-government movement that we need to roll swat for all these cases because of the insurrection um we need to have more resources because oh look we have cases in all 56 field offices so there's this mosaic out there that one could look at and say, my gosh, we have, a, we have a serious nationwide problem. However, the evidence doesn't support that. And what I say in terms of evidence, when over 230, close to 240 cases now that have been adjudicated for January 6th, almost all of them have been for trespassing. So it doesn't really line up with the 3% the narrative or the wearing full body armor and tactical helmet mosaic or a portion of that mosaic that that's out there. When we, um, when we talk about the anti-government movement, that's, uh, that's being sort of described, that was SPLC. So I was sort of tongue in cheek with some of that. Um, obviously they're not my favorite source of, of reputable information. And yet some of that stuff is going to be at least the common leftist narrative. When, uh, when we talk about that, um, would it surprise you to know that it is a required banded threat in all 56 field offices that anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremism or agave is one of the four required banded threats for this fiscal year? 
No, I mean, because it has to be, it has to stay within the mosaic in order to justify the, the actions and the manning and the spending. Um, look, all, all one has to do is go back and look at history and, and the founding of this country. By and large, federalism and the construct of three branches of government in opposition of one another are based on the, on the premise that people don't like government and they want as little as possible. So what we have are two competing ideologies here. One who believes that the government is is the answer to all of your problems. And another one that says that government is the cause of my problems. And so this is not something new that there's this thread running through the American psyche that, hey, we don't like government. It's not that people don't like government or want it overthrown. It's just that people want as little intrusion in their lives as possible from government. But they, they twisted this no differently than they twisted the articles about Steve and I. Yeah, that checks out. Can you describe just uh, in a in an accurate way what the three percenter either ideology or movement or group is, if there's any formal rules to it uh, in your understanding as a as a very senior experienced counterterrorism guy? Yeah, I mean, the three percenters is, is the name is derived from that only, you know, three percent of the country uh, actually you know, rogered up and, and overthrew, you know, to k- kicked out the British uh, during a revolutionary war. And the, the, un- the underlying premises is that's all we really need in order to um, reset uh, what's going on uh, in DC. Um, do I consider them a threat? Um, speaking on, speaking from, you know, what I can actually submit uh, in terms of, of, of observations, um, no, I don't, <laughs> they're, um, it, it just look at what they've done in terms of damage across the country and compare them to some group, say like, I don't know, BLM or Antifa. Um, they're also um, ideas, by the way. Uh, I'm sorry. Also yeah. Ideas. They're all just ideas. Um, I, look, I don't want to be sound dismissive uh, of people. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'd like to try to keep an open mind and entertain uh, as many opposing views as I possibly can. So I know, but, but there's no evidence to support that, that, that the three percenters are an existential threat to the government or that, or the federal government, or that they are some sort of vanguard shock troops for a larger anti-government movement. As I said, just a few seconds ago, there's always been an anti-government thread to the American psyche. Sure. Um, that's not going to change. Now, do you do you have any um, issue with someone making an allegation that somebody in w- with this idea, with this three percenter mentality could be either a violent criminal or a misdemeanor trespasser? Is that something that fits easily within the you, can you hold those two ideas? Is that correct? Yeah, no, they, they can be held separately. They're not, you know, they're not in, dependent of one another. And, and they, you know. That's what we do in the bureau. We investigate individuals. Um, sometimes those individuals are part of larger groups, but individuals commit crimes. Groups are part of that process, but we don't necessarily, ind- you know, we don't prosecute LCN, La Cosa Nostra. We prosecute the, the, the people who are running it. Right. Like Frankie the Tulip or whoever the, the guy is that did the crime within that organized structure because the structure, right. unless we're doing big you know, racketeering cases or things that are going after the entity that is organization and money and so on. Generally, I, I, I agree with you, the individual piece. Um, Steve, are you a adherent to three percenter ideology by chance? 
No, I'm not much to the surprise of the Democrat attorneys that were set across the table from me. Would you fall into the category of extreme and or ultra MAGA? You, no. Can you define I, that, I, by the way? Because I was curious if, if there's a definition of ultra MAGA. I know Biden I likes think to say if it. You, if you like to define it, yeah, I would say it's probably two of the four priorities within the counterterrorism division within the FBI um, are ultra MAGA. But if you're going to take the violent domestic extremists and then the the ethnic extremists, which is basically just coded words for white supremacy. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, I, I'm not MAGA. I um, don't think I voted for the for the man in either election. So I, I, like I told them, like, it's not sour grapes. It's just about the Constitution. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a the term MAGA and ultra conservative, I mean, those are, I hate to use the term because they use it, but I can't think of a better one off the top of my head. It's a dog whistle. It's, it's, it's a label that sticks that, 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 um, 50% of the country recognizes and starts to salivate over anytime it's used. Mm -hmm. That seems true. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's obviously a broad brush. I don't think either of you fit that category based on the uh, the earlier discussions we had. I, I just don't even know what the category is. Well, I mean, neither do they, but they I mean, don't need a definition, do they? That's the best part about just making yeah, exactly. Like I mean, that. we're at the risk of sounding pretentious. We're, I'm, I'm sitting here in an audience of, of of four highly educated men. I'm including myself in that screen, and um, none of us can define it because it doesn't have a definition. Well, there's no footnote either. Interestingly enough. Um, the next paragraph or the next finding, finding one was uh, they didn't like your claims. I think that those things have been addressed and I feel comfortable with the way they were addressed. The second finding was that the witnesses are deeply biased. I'm going to discuss both of your deep biases, if that's okay with you, um, per people who have met you for a few hours of one day of your lives, which expand into several thousand days. Uh at the very at the very short end of it here. So uh, the committee Democrats find that the witnesses embrace January 6 related conspiracy theories and extreme views on domestic terrorism. Um, I'm just going to stop right there. Hold on. Uh, let's talk about what sort of conspiracy theories you guys are into, if you would, and maybe uh, your extreme views on domestic terrorism, maybe your background in domestic terrorism. Steve, can you tell me what your what your credibility is in the domestic terrorism sphere? Um. I've investigated domestic terrorism for the FBI. Uh, as far as my conspiracy theories about January 6th, I, my theory is that the, or statement of fact is that the FBI departed from its case management practices, which it did. So it had nothing to do with the events themselves, just the uh, nuts and bolts of the way the case was being investigated. Okay. Are you comfortable with the fact that there were crimes committed on that day and those people should uh, be investigated for and then have a fair trial? to determine whether or not they're guilty or innocent? Yes. Yes, I am. Which is, again, back to we need to uh, present uh, Brady material to a defendant because that's part of the due process. Explain what Brady material is. Just I know we, we've it's a uh, disclosure. It if you ever watch uh, my, my cousin Vinny, it's called disclosure. He hit uh, the government has to furnish over everything to the defense because you're not allowed to do a surprise at trial. They have to be able to review what you're going to present as evidence so they can mount a defense to it because the burden should be on the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you, in fact, committed a crime. And that includes exculpatory evidence. Yes. Anything that you know goes against what the government's narrative is needs to be presented over and uh, can't be hidden or you have, in fact, violated civil rights. Okay. Um, characterize the events on the date of January 6, 2021, in your own words, if you don't mind. 
Um, I think start, that start maybe a, from the speech that that, that our yep. former president gave, and, and then move forward if you can. What you know of it? President Trump gave a speech, uh, and then during the speech said, "I want people to peacefully uh, walk over to the Capitol and uh, and protest the certification of the election." Okay. Uh, groups of people did that, uh, and then once the uh, we we don't have access to all the surveillance video, but it doesn't see indeed seem that there was violence that transpired between Capitol Police, Metro Police, law enforcement that was present, and some of the individuals. Uh, but there's also some uh, exculpatory evidence from people where they, in fact, asked permission to walk into the Capitol, which they did and then did not engage in any sort of violent or disruptive activity and yet have still been charged with crimes. And you were sent to do some uh, investigative work on some of these cases where people were accused of walking around inside the Capitol. Is that right? Yes, yes. Participated in an interview with a subject who was under investigation. He told us that he'd gotten Capitol Police permission to walk in. He was on video in the Capitol, not committing any sort of violent action, just sort of walking around and then leaving. And uh, he was still under investigation for the the four pack of crimes, like the uh, the parading and the interfering with the process, which is an Enron case uh, crime. But uh, yes, he was still on the hook for those. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's see, domestic terrorism. You, do you affiliate with any domestic terrorist groups that you can think of that you feel pretty good about? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, my, my dad's Catholic. Is, is that a problem? Possibly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's probably another discussion, George. They, they specifically go after you. Do you have any uh, particular conspiracy theories that you're a big fan of that you like to espouse or that you've been sharing? They noted like eight of your tweets on here, which are funny and congressional record shows Footnote 12, the Kyle Serafin show, George Hill, which is yeah. actually quite funny. So let me give you, this is the conspiracy theory that I put forth in, in deposition. Okay. This is what they're calling a conspiracy theory. When asked about, you know, what my thoughts were when I first got the notification via email of the events that were transpiring on January 6th, and I said, and obviously I don't have the transcript here in front of me, but to the best of my recollection, I said, I was absolutely shocked. I, I couldn't believe that this was happening. Having uh, shepherded and approved dozens of threat assessments for multiple events in the Boston AOR from the Boston Marathon to uh, Super Bowl parades to World Series championship parades to um, the Boston Pops Festival each July, um, surrounding events in other states. Uh, it was just incomprehensible to me how this could have happened considering that the metropolitan police department the parks police and the capitol police have been handling large-scale demonstrations at least since the birth of the civil rights movement in 1965 i think which probably some of the biggest ones hit dc mm -hmm. so yes um counselor i was shocked and appalled how this could possibly happen considering the decades of institutional knowledge that resided in the Capitol that day. Okay. So that's my conspiracy theory. So your conspiracy theory is one is can read into that whatever they want to, but that's what I said. Some sort of failure happened, or it appears that a failure happened in the threat assessment and then the preparation prior to the events on January 6th. Is that right. is that a boil down? Epic failure. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that constitutes a conspiracy theory. Yeah, well, they they claim that it was a setup. This is their quote. Uh, this is from one of your Twitter account pieces. They mentioned from December 28th, 
Um, they talk about, they, they reference our, our interview on the 9th of this year in January. Um, I'm going to reflect on that for a second, if you, if you don't mind. So I also participated in a number of these threat assessments. I think that I was not in the level that you were, you were doing the analytical end of it. And I was in the actual, like that guy who got sent out to go do things. And I can, I can hundred percent tell you that there are, there's an entire squad at the Washington field office that only handles major events that happen in the DC area and its response. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but Phil probably does. I know some of the people on it, but I don't want to name them specifically. They're frontline agents. Um, there is a, there, there's actually two squads. One of them is like the operation squad. It has like SWAT and the bomb team uh, or the, the bomb tech team. There's the evidence response team. There's the dive team for underwater things. And they even go out on these big events and they sweep the bridges and, you know, look in the, in the Potomac and all these kind of things and watch the, the riverside. Um, but when these events happen, there's a thing that's called an NSSE. And I don't think they have them in other field offices in the same way. Do, you, do they have those in Boston? NSSEs? They're national. Okay, it's National Special Security Event. National Special Security Events are, by statute and by um, executive order, required to be handled by the DHS, specifically the Secret Service is the lead agency, and they do National Capital Region responses. And so, when there's a parade, you know, somewhere on the National Mall, it's DHS, specifically Secret Service, that goes out and checks into it. Uh, everybody gets involved. Every single federal agency you can imagine. Department of Energy is there. Commerce Department has people out there. Uh, obviously, all of DOJ and all the different DHS entities are all involved. Um, park police from the interior are part of it. Everybody's got to play. And so you've got helicopters up and you've got you know sweeps looking for bombs and all the other kind of stuff. All the things that you have, have sort of assigned, these are possible threats when you have a lot of people in one place. And we've got to do the things to make sure we mitigate and have an acceptable level of risk while still ensuring people's ability to freely assemble and freely speak and freely do all the sort of First Amendment protected activities they have. So they have a problem with your assessment on that. I'm going to read directly from this document again. George Hill claimed, among other things, that the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 was a quote-unquote setup, and they reference a tweet, and that it was part of a quote, larger Democrat plan using their enforcement arm, the FBI, end quote, and that rioter Ashley Babbitt was quote-unquote murdered by a Capitol police officer. Let's just stop right on that and talk about that a little bit. Um, murdered is, it sounds like your word. They, they reference a tweet, um, number 10. So this would have been from January 6th of this year. Did you, uh, you know, do you allege that Ashley Babbitt was murdered? I was actually asked that question in my deposition. Okay. And I said the following, I am a USCCA, uh, United States Concealed Carry Association certified instructor. Mm -hmm. I went through the FBI Academy about six years ago as a field counselor from beginning to end with the agent class. And based on what I know of the incident from reports and video, that that was an unlawful shooting. Mm -hmm. Steve, any thoughts on that? Uh, I think that you have a good case there, which is watching the video, you know, and, and, uh, and the fact that there was not really an investigation done, we're never really going to know. But uh, I'm familiar with the use of force policy that the uh, the DOJ sets out for its uh for its law enforcement personnel and armed personnel. And I think that uh, there were some violations of that. What is the right, standard so, for using deadly force in that case? Do you, first of all, George, first, what your, your uh, understanding of the, the standard for use of force in that scenario? Loss of life, potential loss of life. That's what they have to defend against. Steve, you want, uh, do you have a more um, tight? Yeah, version? it's a uh, law enforcement officers shall uh, use force if there is a threat of imminent, uh, imminent threat of 
uh, serious physical harm or death upon a person that the subject of the force, so the subject, the person that you're delivering the round to, is about to uh, impose on yeah. uh, you or another person. Um, and I don't think that a woman crawling through a window me meets the uh, threshold of imminent. I'm yeah, gonna, significant bodily harm, right? Exactly. I, will, I, I will read you guys both from memory, or I will, I will share you the the DOJ's version. Now, Capitol Police may have a slightly different version, but I had to do this every single day, and I think it's relevant to know it, and then we can comment on it. Because I think the, the story of Ashley Babbitt is one of the focal points. It was brought up in the Militia Violent Extremist Symbols Guide, talking about her being a martyr for the so-called, you know, like wild, loony right-wing people, the Militia Violent Extremists. So let's like be real precise on that language again. The DOJ's version of it is law enforcement officers of the Department of Justice may use deadly force only when necessary. That is when the subject of such force poses an imminent danger of death or serious physical injury to the agent or to another person. That's the, those are the criteria. So imminent physical uh, is imminent physical danger, death or serious physical injury. It's got to be imminent. That's the big piece. I think that's the argument against the Ashley Babbitt shooting is that she was looking through a window that was smaller than her own head or smaller than her own body, right? Right. Her shoulders couldn't fit through it. So imminence would, would be the big piece on there. And then what death or physical, you know, serious physical injury was she threatening at that time? Um, I agree with your assessment, George. I'm just, I want to dig down into why you thought that. And I, and your credentials on it, I think are also fair. Most human beings, if they got involved in a shooting of someone who stuck their head through a window would be in jail. So let's, let's look at the, the, the larger picture of what we actually saw on open source video before the video was released. Mm -hmm. We saw Capitol Hill police shoving people over the balusters, the, 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 the stone railings of the Capitol, shoving them back over the railing and onto the ground, 15, 20 feet below. A lot of those people were injured where there's video of that. What they're supposed to be doing as public safety officers is pulling those people over the railing, and then arresting, arresting them. Instead, what we saw was an all-out brawl conducted in an unlawful and unprofessional manner. We also saw people conducting themselves in a very professional and lawful manner. Um, but I was specifically asked about Lieutenant Byrd, and that's what I commented on. Mm -hmm. um, and I do stand by those comments. Yeah, I suspect you do. So we had a discussion in my squad uh, just a couple of days later, as soon as the video that was available from both the two different angles, it was one obviously from someone on Ashley's side of the shooting where you could see the hand stick across and then a security camera video of some kind that showed kind of a broader bird eye look that showed the hand and the, and her coming through the other side of the glass. And without, ex without uh, only one exception stated they believe that that might have been a justifiable shooting and we had maybe a hundred and something years worth of law enforcement experience between us all there um there were 10 of us uh a former hrt team leader uh who was a west point graduate and he was a you know a u.s uh army ranger in the 75th ranger battalion or 75th ranger regiment rather uh so yeah. he was a battalion commander um this is a guy that has seen violence understands the use of violence and obviously hrt tra trains at the fbi's highest standards, I would say, for use of force, they can justify things that maybe other people wouldn't. And he said under note, he said that was a murder. So I think that's worth noting. Um, I think law enforcement officers in general should should be restrained once again, right? And then we saw that was not necessarily a restrained action. Doesn't mean that there wasn't an ability to articulate it. I just none of us have seen it. Was that be would that be fair to characterize? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, unless there was some guidance given by the sergeant of arms with the approval of the speaker of the house 
that changed the use of rules for deadly force. Yeah. As a SWAT team guy, Steve, no no one has seen. I'm sorry. No. And I want to run over to Steve, Steve, as a guy who worked on a SWAT team a number of times, is there anything that would have changed the, the, the impetus on taking that shot that early uh, for you? If they would have given you information. Yeah. If she had, uh, was trying to, get the tactical advantage or was fleeing the scene in which she had engaged in some sort of deadly action, okay. uh, which would again correspond with what our, uh, our exceptions are uh, for uh, use of force. Phil, you have any thought on that? What would have like actually been a, a, a marching order that could have gone out that could have changed that and made that a justifiable shot? No, uh, I'm not aware. And uh, the fact that, you know, it seemed like an isolated incident kind of, you know, we could all Monday morning quarterback it, but the fact that that was the only incident and example that day kind of makes it stand out as a poor use of deadly force. So anybody who doesn't listen to our show regularly, if you're new to it, first of all, welcome. But moreover, uh, producer Phil, 15 years as an FBI agent, has a lot of experience in this as well. Um, the only thing I could think of, and, I, and I, I appreciate that too, that it was the only singular shooting event, despite you know probably hundreds, if not thousands, of physical altercations that took place between law enforcement and citizens who either got out of hand or in places they were otherwise restricted from being, no disagreement that that was riotous behavior um, on some people's, you know, we saw clashes where people were hitting cops for sure. But that was the only, that was the only bullet that was expended as far as we know. It's a single. But if this went to court, but if this went to court, it would have been allowed for, as by the judge, that there have been other incidences of Lieutenant Byrd um, misuse of firearms. We're talking about things like leaving it in a bathroom and some of the other sort of. Right. I mean, just, yeah. So it, it would have been, that would have been allowed. A judge would have allowed that. Yeah. I think the family got, uh, the court. I think they got robbed out of at least a, uh, a righteous uh, investigation of this. It does appear that it did not get done. All right. I want to keep reading through this thing. Um, I don't want to live on Ashley Babbitt all day long, but I don't think that was a, I don't think that was an accurate assessment of you and that they, that I think that was a improper smear. They failed that one. Um, he also described, this is uh, you, George, described the FBI as the quote unquote brown shirt enforcers of the DNC, an apparent reference to Nazi stormtroopers. I, I was wondering what the heck they were talking about. They made a reference to Nazis and some sort of conspiracy theory. Talk about the brown shirt enforcers of the DNC, justified or otherwise, or if you want to back away from it. So I didn't make that uh, in my deposition. That was a First Amendment tweet. Um, you know, I will say this, that I'm still chafing my ass still chase, uh, from Dick Durbin, who, uh, called us interrogators at Gitmo no better than the Gestapo. Um, so, you know, um, I guess maybe we all should be more careful with our words. Okay. Can you, um, I spent a year in Gitmo doing interrogations. That's what I wanted to get to. We, yeah. Do you mind uh, kind of telling your background as an interrogator and how much time you spent doing that? Why that might, uh, rub you wrong? Well, I mean, I spent not that long, a few months, uh, forward deployed, um, in Southwest Asia doing battlefield interrogations. I was back for maybe not even half a year before I spent another year in Gitmo doing strategic interrogations. I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of the Saudi Arabian team. We lost our GS DIA, uh, employee. So I had to fleet up and take over the OIC position. So I still had over two dozen, uh, detainees that I had to interrogate and was running 24 seven operations of multiple, uh, interrogation teams, uh, in all of 2004. And during that time, were you engaged in Nazi practices in any way? To the best of my knowledge? No, no. Um, I was too damn tired <laughs> to, 
to practice much of anything other than uh, my job and, and trying to get some sleep when I could. Fair enough. All right. We're not backing away from this tweet. Um, you said, as you said, a First Amendment protected activity. And in that activity, you're allowed to use things like hyperbole, analogy, metaphor, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You've also- The only difference is I'm not a U.S. senator. That's true. You're not. You don't have that speech and debate clause either, though. So I don't know. You've only got that First Amendment that says you can say anything you want in this country yeah. within uh, within most parameters. It also says that you publicly stated, quote, there needs to take place a re-education and that American, and then now they take away the quote, and this is apparently their paraphrase, and that Americans should embrace the risk of dying by terrorism uh, rather than accept domestic intelligence programs that keep them safe. Their words in this case, quoting the Kyle Serafin show, George Hill, Podbean, um, at one hour and 48 minutes in. You and I had a nice long chat. That was on January 9th of this year. Can you uh, can you add a little bit of meat to that bone that they've thrown out there? That's an interesting thing to gnaw on. Yeah, that, that, that's hard to summarize in, in a short couple of sentences, which I just used for. Um, the, the bottom line to the, the discussion that you and I had, Kyle, is this, is that the domestic, uh, the number of domestic violent extremist cases that are out there, truly that exist, um, are not commensurate with the level of uh, effort being put forth by the federal government to go after them. And what we are seeing then is an erosion of constitutional protections in favor of zero uh, people being affected by some someone that has been declared a domestic uh, violent extremist. Um, I don't know the quote off the top of my head from Ben Franklin, but you know, people who choose safety over uh, liberty uh, basically deserve neither. Um, I'm, I'm butchering the quote. I apologize to Mr. Franklin, but look, there's, there's a risk. There's, there's a risk. And, you know, and I was asked about that during my deposition, you know, about risk. Um, you know, you take a risk when you get into your car and drive to work. You take a, a risk when you get on the air, an airplane and go somewhere. Um, we, you know, and people don't even think about that. Um, but yet, for some reason, we've come to this place in our society where we must have zero risk uh, of people not just being domestic violent extremists, but actually even saying things that we disagree with. Um, so, no, I think it, it, it's gone to the point of absurdity. Would you agree that people probably have to do? Oh, let me let me rephrase that. Um, the statement is people must embrace the risk of dying by terrorism rather than accept domestic intelligence programs in order to mitigate all risk of dying by terrorism. What sort of domestic intelligence programs would we have to tolerate as Americans in order to mitigate that risk completely? Number one, stop this defund the police movement. Um, well, I'm, I'm looking specifically, like if people are going to accept domestic intelligence programs that keep them safe, what would yeah. those domestic intelligence programs have to do to mitigate all risk? They, 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 it would have to be a total lockdown almost. So no constitutional liberties at all, because we've already seen it taken to an extreme where people cannot even voice like, don't take a vaccine, take a vaccine, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You know, those people even getting labeled as domestic terrorists. I am a life member of the National Rifle Association. The National Rifle Association are, is being called a terrorist organization. So therefore, then by definition from the left, we are a domestic terrorist organization because we're a domestic organization. Um, it, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's just absolutely absurd. I'm not proposing that people die. Of course not. 
Um, but, you know, there has to be constraints uh, on federal law enforcement as to, as to, you know, level of intrusiveness and how much uh, in the way of constitutional protections are people willing to forego. I'm not willing to forego any. Yeah. That means, and I'm going to restate what they said, their version was embrace the risk of dying by terrorism uh, instead of accepting domestic intelligence program that keep them safe. You're saying uh, embrace that you have freedom. Freedom has a little bit of risk associated with it. And so therefore you are, in fact, embracing a possibility that terrorism could happen because otherwise you have no freedom. You'd have to completely lock down all the mechanisms that we enjoy as Americans. Yeah, that, I'm embracing the fact that yeah, absolutely. That's 100% accurate. I'm embracing that I could get into a car accident on my way over to the drugstore. I'm embracing that I could get into an airplane accident when I go on vacation um, next month. I mean, that's just life. It, it, this zero risk uh, is is unachievable. And all it does is, is, is diminish our constitutional protections. And it diminishes us as men and women. I'm, so, I'm sorry, there's only two sexes. I'm, I'm going to go there. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Steve, um, can you think of any types of maybe um, government uh, government ideologies or government mechanisms that would result in zero risk? You got any like names off the top of your head that might be able to that would lead us to a no risk situation? Um, I think the Patriot Act was was implemented with that with that mindset. Uh, Seven hundred two. Um, as a mechanism is we're, we're going to have zero risk. I I don't think that you can do anything other than just uh, lock everybody in their homes and uh, that's it. But, but there's, uh, there's risk to that. There's yeah. yeah I, I, there's, it's just impossible. It's, there's, it's there's, impossible. there's obesity. There's lack of social skills. There's risk to everything. Correct. That's, a, that's an excellent uh, analytical point. It looks like you have thought their their problem through. What about if we just all like hooked up to the batteries in the matrix and just sat in like a goo and we're given some sort of uh, if if we no longer cared about you as individuals, this this all leads down to the road of totalitarianism and authoritarianism to me. Well, um, that's what Klaus Schwab wants, right? You'll own nothing and be happy. Yeah, he seems like a Bond villain. You will, um, you will own nothing and be happy and you will do nothing and be safe. I mean, that's that's the goal. Can we talk about the extreme views that you hold of the Republican select subcommittee there, George? This is another little quote from them. The Republicans are talking about a 21st century, a 2023 version of the church committee. I think what Shakespeare said, this is the, they're quoting you apparently. Um, I think this is from our show too. Uh, I think what Shakespeare said, if you're going to kill the king, make sure you kill the king. If they're going to go after, if this new committee is going to go after the intelligence community, they better make sure they get out every bit of cancer that's out there, because I can tell you right now, it's going to come back and it'll come back stronger and more vicious than ever. Any reflection on that? Uh, that sounds like about what I think you said. I, I'm sure yeah, it's, it it's, it's accurate. It's accurate. And I mean it. If you're going to reform the intelligence community, um, you better do it right, because to quote Chuck Schumer, uh, if you go up against the intelligence community, there are a thousand ways to Sunday for them to get back at you. I may have misquoted Chuck Schumer. Six ways to, from Sunday. That was his words. Six ways from Sunday. Yeah. So, all right. So, again, I can say, well, I can't say it, but a U.S. senator can say it. It's the same damn thing. I like that. I also like that they quoted us twice. And you know what's funny? I found that to be the meat of the, uh, or maybe the, the crown jewel of the interview that you and I did previously. 
and I'm glad that they pulled it out for us. If anybody needs to go and hear these things, these are these are really salient points, but they happen at uh, an hour and 48 minutes in, and the second quote was at an hour and 40. So if you go at about an, a hundred, an hour and 30 minutes in to about an hour and 50 minutes, you're going to catch the meat of what I think the most salient points were that I think George was warning against, and I think they are well-received, um, not by House uh, Democrats, it turns out, but I do think they were really important things can and, I, and you're can I inject, please? Can I inject something just as a uh, as a taxpayer and an American citizen mm-hmm. um, that a, a select committee within the House Judiciary Committee does its job of rooting out uh, weaponization within the federal government? I, I think we we could all do like the whole like I'm American citizen and I endorse this message that you see at the end of every political ad. I I don't know who who in their right mind who's not you know a nefarious player says. I don't want that. I don't want the government to to look into bad things that it's doing and get rid of them. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into your conspiracy theories because I got those in front of me here too. And uh, <laughs> I don't want this to be one-sided. George is off the hot seat for a moment. He can just uh, be an interesting observer here. Stephen Friend also embraces conspiracy theories. We're quoting again from the document in front of me about the January 6th Capitol attack. I find it interesting. They've talked about it being a riot, an attack, and they use that over and over again. And they've only one time mentioned it as an insurrection. I just want to say that I'm a reader and I I think words have meanings. And I think that when you are trying to make a point, they are they're stepping away from the narrative of insurrection, even in this document occasionally, as they're discussing you, because it's a it's it's very difficult for anybody who's a a rational person. Uh, I think George, I don't know if you heard this, but Steve and I had a funny conversation about what happens. The secret um, invisible ink side of the Constitution states that if you can get a guy with a Viking helmet into the Speaker of the House chair um, on the floor, th- then you then you own the government. Then you become the new leader. Um, no one else knows about the secret thing. This is like a national treasure piece. Only Nicolas Cage and apparently Steve Friend knew that and the guy with the Viking helmet. So, all right. Um, in a in a December 2, 2022 public letter to Chris Ray. By the way, this is the Suspendables letter. This is amazing stuff. This suspendable letter just continues to, to pay dividends for me and for you. I never get harassed about it, by the way. Just you, Steve. Friend asked what he described as tough but fair questions, such as, quote, will you commit to educating executive management personnel that J6 protesters did not kill any police officers? Quote, is Ray Epps a confidential human source? And quote, why didn't the FBI open a civil rights investigation concerning the killing of Ashley Babbitt? Your chance to backtrack from any of those questions that you asked. Mm, I'm Steve Friend, and I endorse these questions. <laughs> well, um, let's let's take them one at a time. Um, take one at a time. How, yeah. How, how many police officers were killed uh, by January 6 protesters? Well, well according to the uh, the Democrat uh, attorneys that I spoke to, they said three were killed, um, and they said that they were hanging their hat on this DOJ uh, report that said that those were in the line of duty deaths, but. As I point out to them, one occurred on the 7th and one on the 9th and one on the 12th. So I don't think that anybody was killed on the 6th, which I think I'm, I'm standing on fairly accurate ground, even if you want to claim that they're in the line of duty deaths. Uh, I don't I don't particularly think that, you know, they're sad. If you see somebody dies of a stroke, I'm, you know, I feel bad. Or suicide. Um, I don't think, you know, or suicide or was the last one a heart attack? Not clear. Uh, I'm not sure of the last one. Uh, and I told them, look, I, I don't know about that last one. But all but, of them, uh, all of them, none of them were ruled as injuries sustained as a result of aggressive actions by filthy Trump supporters on the, the January 6th events. Correct. Correct. Right. So, I mean, and, and so again, I've, I've, I've had this 
this discussion with executive management within the FBI, the security division within the FBI, and now apparently uh, the majority membership within the select committee all subscribe to the belief that police officers were killed that day. Mm -hmm. What about Ray Epps? Is he a confidential human source? I want to know. I think that's there's uh, there's a lot of uh, of questions that have been posed that I think are legitimate. I mean, the guy seemed to be inciting, and uh, if he if he wasn't a human source, like I kind of want to see him charged if he's inciting some sort of bad activity. I, I think that's worth investigating. If he was a human source, then we really got some explaining to do because now you have a human source who's uh, inciting violence at the U.S. Capitol, which is a problem. Yeah. I think that's interesting enough. Um, why didn't the, well, hold on, Phil, do you think Ray Epps might've been a human source? Is there a possibility at least? Well, I mean, even Joe Rogan himself has asked that question. The whole thing stinks to high heavens. I think all of us have suspicions given the fact that he seems central to that day. He's very visible yet. He has never been charged to my knowledge. Maybe you guys can elaborate. It's awfully suspicious. I just want to go ahead and say, hold on. First of all, I just want to say that the FBI does not comment on ongoing investigations. Okay. We just, they just don't reveal sources and they don't reveal sources. The Southern Poverty Law Center. That's right. George, you're up. Go ahead. So so real brief. And I've had this conversation with um, friends that are still with the Bureau. Whether Ray Epps is a CHS or whether there were CHSs in the Capitol, to use Phil's word, it, it, it needs to be investigated. And by shutting people down and calling them conspiracy theorists or MAGA extreme or, you know, you know, extreme MAGA or whatever pejorative term they want to foist on, on people who do not just reflexively sign off on the narrative only exacerbates the problem. There's only one, well, there may be more than one way, but the, the primary way to get through this is to be allowed to ask questions, to allow some fresh air and sunlight in. And let's just take a look at this stuff. It's the only, you know, whether they're, whether the 2020 election was stolen or not is irrelevant. What's more relevant is that people, a significant number of people believe that it was stolen. And the only way to get to, 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 to tamp that down is not by pushing back against it, but to open the curtains, open the windows, let the air and the sunshine in, and let's just talk about it. But, but instead by, by stifling people, by stifling constructive discourse, you're making a problem worse. Right. Why do you think that, um, why do you think that they don't want to have a free discussion of it? I'm curious of both of your thoughts, they being the house Democrats in this case, but also it turns out like a lot of people on the left in general, whether it be through Twitter files, um, censorship, whether it be social media as a, a larger animal, there's a lot of resistance to even engaging in the conversation and bringing out facts to either debunk because we don't have all the facts out there. It seems like, why do you think that is? So, again, kind of like when we're talking about investigating individuals in, in, in versus groups, I think that that to some degree, uh, percentage-wise, splitting it up, I think some people are, are genuinely afraid of, of the answer. I think that some people have more nefarious intent. Um, I think that some people, in their heart of hearts, consider themselves true patriots and that half the country truly is evil. Um, so I, I think it varies from person to person, um, other than maybe, you know, Klaus Schwab. I don't think there's anybody out there stroking a white Persian cat with an eye patch. Um, I, I think it varies from, from individual to individual. Um, but I, I think the cure is the same for all of them, which is fresh air and sunshine. Steve, you want to weigh in? 
I think George kind of sums it up pretty nicely. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the election is too, too far in, in, in the rearview mirror, I think, for a lot of people. I think everybody at this point in the country kind of, or, or a significant enough of people, of population in the country kind of just wants to to move on. But the January 6th thing that's, uh, the what, what went on that day, I, I think, uh, needs to be looked at because there's so much downstream effect to that where, you know, you it, it, the intelligence gathering nature that now has taken over with uh, with the FBI, the the fact that if, if there was something that was going on that was funny that day, you know, can, can we get the the actors that were involved in that? Are they still in a position that that could impact American policy? I mean, that's that's a problem. You know, I don't know if it, it was, you know, was it within the FBI? Was it within, you know, other agencies? Was it something that was within uh, even, you know, the the politicians and elected officials? Like, I know that sounds conspiratorial, but uh, I think a long, a, we can go a long way if we just release the tapes. We can just start there. The people's house, there's nothing there that's that's a security risk. Like, let's just, sunshine is the best disinfect it. Um, and I think that would go a long ways as to assuaging people's suspicions if you just let us watch what happened that day as opposed to pulling stuff out of context which george and i had to undergo last week with these media and it's you can basically shape any narrative that you want that way and i don't think that that's that's constructive it's funny they actually allege that you guys cherry pick information we'll get to that in just a second here um civil rights investigation into the killing of ashley babbitt we were big on it going after i was really excited about talking to john mattingly over that specifically because he had a civil rights investigation into him for executing a lawful warrant uh, on the in the Breonna Taylor, you know, debacle as things went down, where he was shot. It turns out because there was actually fire that was initiated from the other side. Um, there are civil rights investigations that were you know, successfully prosecuted in the case of George Floyd and the four officers that were involved in uh, taking him to custody as as he died for whatever reasons. Um, <laughs> and then nothing regarding the Ashley Babbitt situation. What is the conspiracy theory um, in asking a question why the FBI didn't do that? What what conspiracy theory are you uh, engaged in there? Because I I read a question. I want to know what the conspiracy theory is behind your question there, Steve. Yeah, I, I don't have a theory. I, I don't even know if, if we even need the civil rights qualifier. How about just a, a full investigation? I, I think that mm -hmm. that was all summed up in a one-page letter from the DOJ saying, we, we've done an investigation, that's it. That That's inadequate especially for something that's that high profile um you know we, we we saw something like that happen you know uh you take the the michael floyd killing that happened back in 2014 the fbi looked into that and did its full that due michael diligence brown. on it michael oh michael brown, brown. yeah not michael I, I was sitting um, here i was like something's not computing in my head i, I know yeah i right. conflated to you're good to, uh yes. to victims of police shootings i'm sorry uh yeah michael brown and the fbi or the department of justice did a full investigation and and rendered a decision and unfortunately it was it was late in the process and there'd been a lot of of rioting and and, and fallout from that but uh they did it and kind of everything kind of tampered down from there at least from mm -hmm. what i understand within ferguson why wouldn't they do the same thing here especially when you have a voluminous quantity of footage whereas we didn't have that in Ferguson, Missouri. But you they did release the body cam footage of the officer that was involved in the shooting with Michael Brown. They released all mm -hmm. the body cam footage, every angle, and all the people that had cell phone footage when we were talking about George Floyd. Um, you know, anything that came out of the Breonna Taylor, they did autopsy. They went into her whole backstory and all the other things like this. Nothing on the uh, the Babbitt scenario 
we didn't see that. George, you were shaking your head vigorously earlier. Did you want to add to this at all? I'd like to just see the level of effort put into the Ashley Babbitt shooting that they put into investigating a pull rope for a NASCAR driver. I, yeah. Okay. I mean, come on. How many agents? Uh, it, was let, that? Let's, let's be, nobody died. Right. But it was a threat, wasn't it? That had been there for so long. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, was that a pre civil rights movement, uh, uh, garage tie? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? I can't think of that. Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace. I'm cursed with the ability to remember all this stuff. And it, it, uh, this is why I don't sleep at night. I just wait there in the morning and then I get back up again. Like Chuck Norris. I just sit there and stew on all the things that our country has decided to do. We could, we could spend two hours just going through, you know, each contradictory level of effort, you know, um, you know, you put, a helo in the air and a boat in the water and you put people in full tactical gear to arrest 78 year old Roger Stone. I mean, it's just, it, you know, the, the, the disparities are just so apparent and, and how dare you question that when it's, it's right in front of your own eyes. And, and, you know, it looking at director Ray's testimony, uh, not testimony, God, well, um, his, his his puff interview with, with Brett Bear um, to, to to defend that sort of behavior it was just boy talk about chutzpah yeah um, all right so I want to we're gonna skip past a lot of these things they like I said they allege that you cherry picked facts let's let's uh, jump in have you George gotten any of that sweet uh, Trump affiliated Cash Patel money that would make you just come forward and. Bad mouth the bureau. Yeah, I mean, if, if I cared enough to engage with Adam or Gail or anybody else who wrote these hit pieces, I would call them and clear it up. But I'll do it here. Um, I used my Marriott points and stayed uh, at a Marriott hotel um, out of my own pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, I paid uh, for my own gas to drive down the significant amount of, of, of highway travel mm-hmm. and tolls. I stayed with uh, f- uh, family and um, that were relatively close to the region. Um, I paid for my own meals. I paid for my own coffee. Um, it was all out of my pocket. And um, it's, it's it, I'm not complaining about it at all. Um, but no, I, di- I didn't, re- didn't receive any money. And, and I um, object to being uh, slandered like that, saying that I did. I object to it too. I think that's awful. Uh, Steve, I know that you received some Cash Patel money in December of last year. Let's talk about this theory, which we sort of adjudicated on Twitter in a funny way. But did you give up one hundred and thirty thousand dollar a year job retroactively, like previously, in order to receive a five thousand dollar one time payout um, by Cash Patel with no strings? Or how did you make that decision? Uh, let me be clear. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> I um, no, I was suspended indefinitely without pay on September 19th, 2022. Um, I, at that point, retained attorney via a charitable organization, uh, which covered the full retainer, uh, or 75% of the retainer. I ponied up the uh, the other 25% out of my own pocket, and then uh, had no paycheck at all. Was that charitable organization months. called Cash Patel or Fight with Cash? No, no. It was called actually Empower Oversight. And it's run by Jason Foster, and Jason was at my side when I testified. And when the uh, the minority side questioned my legal fees, he took quite umbrage with that, seeing as how he footed the bill. 
Um, Tracking. Good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that was in September. And then Mm -hmm. um, sometime later, I guess it was December. That's what- I think it was late November. I think it was around Thanksgiving. Cash uh, reached out to me and said that uh, his foundation uh, was- uh, wanted to give me a $5,000 stipend to help support my family. Um, and that he actually said to me, uh, I don't want you to make it public. Uh, this is completely charitable from me. What, so what, there was yeah, no what stipulations were on it. What, what did you have to do in order to receive this? Uh, answered the phone when he called me, I was actually at the dinner table and it said cash Patel on my phone. I was like, Hey, hey dad, I got to take this call. Uh, he, he'd actually texted me and asked, I uh, said, identified himself and said, Hey, can I, uh, can I talk to you? So sure. And uh, yeah, he he talked to me for probably about 15, 20 minutes. No quid pro quo. It was just uh, purely a charitable effort on his part. And uh, and the fact that he didn't want to make it public, I think speaks really well of him and his endeavors and his, his organization, uh, who I've never done anything for, never asked anything of me. So I, uh, he sent my family and I a check, which was great because it was, you know, Christmas time and been without pay for a while. And then... Uh, no, no interaction with cash, uh, the exception of maybe sharing a truth post of his or his, him sharing one of mine. Uh, there was no direct communication between him and I until this year when in January he reached out and said that there's a organization that he was doing some work for called Center for Renewing America that was going to have a, a fellowship come available. And he thought that I would fit uh, really nicely for that. And if I wanted to do or had interest in it, he could enter me into the application process. So I said, yes. And uh, interviewed, provided samples of my writing, and then uh, was blessed to get an offer and accept an offer to take a, a fellowship position. Cash was not involved in any of that process other than basically putting my name in the pool. And did you uh, resign your position? I'm sorry, did you uh, undergo whistleblowing activity in the FBI and uh, tor- torpedo a otherwise successful career because you knew this was coming down the line? No, I've, that, was, that was premonition abilities. I think I probably would have been putting some bets down in Vegas, uh, seeing as that was five months after being suspended. I don't think that I uh, I, I played my cards that well. Yeah, that's fair. Um, hmm. But that's really hard to make that square with the fact that uh, you were out there. Did you make those allegations? So you didn't make the allegations knowing that Patel would eventually reach out to you, someone you'd never met before, and then make you like a a stipend offer when you hadn't had pay. That's all troubling. Um, can we can we focus on your severe animus for a moment against the FBI? We're actually at near the end of the uh, the substantive part of this document, so actually we're doing pretty good. Um, it says you demonstrated severe animus against the FBI. Do you have severe animus against the FBI? Yes, I do. Oh, why? Why is that? Uh, they suspended me without pay indefinitely. Mm-hmm. They deprived me of the ability to seek outside employment when I actually submitted the necessary paperwork. They rejected it. Okay. They shared my private medical information with the New York Times and also alleged that I committed uh, an act of shooting a firearm in my backyard to the New York Times. Have you ever shot your firearm in your backyard? No, no, I haven't. Um, okay. And definitely not a bureau firearm but or any firearm at all in my backyard and uh they what about see, a nerf I'm, I'm gun? Losing... Have, you sh- have you shot a nerf gun no no i i shoot the real thing only i've, I've graduated love it okay i'm gonna hit the uh the high points of what they said they you apparently called it a feckless garbage institution direct quote from uh twitter do you stand by that yes 
Okay. Yes, endorse. Uh, you stated that it needs to be it needs to be control alt deleted and completely eliminated and eradicated from the federal government. What's control alt deleted? Uh, eliminated. Undo. Abolished. Oh, control alt delete is a full reboot, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, you stand by that. Yes. Okay. Uh, you joined Twitter in November of 2022, and through February, when they interviewed you, you posted 20 times calling for the FBI to be "quote unquote" defunded, dismantled, dissolved, aborted, abolished, or otherwise ended. I don't know what "otherwise ended" means. What do you think? Did, they, did you say it the same way? It's a catch-all. I don't. I'm trying to think if I use any other thesaurus terms for ending the FBI. Okay. Avow yeah. or disavow? Uh, avow. Avow. Holy. Scattered to the wind, broken into a thousand parts and scattered to the wind. George, do you, they didn't quote you specifically, but do you hold similar um, severe animus towards the FBI in the way that it's currently engaged in operations? Um, I have not suffered um, like you gentlemen have at the hands of the FBI. So I, um, number one, I don't discount uh, Steve's assessment at all because that, that, but that was his experience, not mine. Mm -hmm. Um, I stand by my comments that I made in our very first uh, podcast, whereby I think the FBI needs to be severely overhauled. Um, it needs to, we need to end the intelligence program that exists within the FBI that was created as a result of the Patriot Act. I agree with um, Mr. Baker. I can't think of his name. I'm, I'm about Thomas. Thomas Baker. I'm pretty well through his book right now, but I agree with his assessment in his book. Um, as well as his testimony that it needs to return back to a law enforcement agency. And I agree with um, uh, General Barrows, who was the my second commandant when I joined the Marine Corps, when he came, came, uh, came up with what's called the expeditious discharge, whereby that if anyone had any uh, non-judicial punishments, they could apply for an expeditious discharge and said, I don't care if I have to cut the number of Marines in half, uh, but I'm going to clean this mess up and we're going to come back stronger than ever. Um, I think that that's the kind of radical approach uh, that that needs to be taken to eliminate the intelligence branch, to end the Patriot Act, to end 702. Um, and then if they have to reduce the number of agents in what's left of the FBI in half in order to rebuild a quality investigative agency that supports the Department of Justice, then so be it. Um, but at the meantime, they also need to take a look at overlap between the FBI, ATF, HSI, IRS, all these 1811s now that are prolific throughout the federal government. Um, so my position is a little bit more nuanced and long winded. But like I said, I did not I was not punished or suffered. Uh, I haven't suffered anything um, at the hands of the FBI. Did, did George and I just exercise our first amendments and have a disagreement and, and that, that ended well, where we had a dialogue and this is how adults behave. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think that you have to have the same, like, I think that's the whole point of a lot of these conversations that I'm liking to have. I don't necessarily have to agree a hundred percent with anybody. Um, in fact, I like it when I don't, I want to hear other perspectives. I think you guys both just did a, a good example of one has a more extreme position. Um, you know, I'll put extreme in scare quotes. Um, but a more position, a more aggressive position. And yet I think Steve, if that were the, the operation that they undertook, that would be still a step in the right direction. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. 
it's interesting that we can do this. I'm going to read their conclusion real quick here, and then I'll let you guys do a quick response, and then we'll uh, we'll read out here. I know Phil's probably got something uh, queued up to, to read us out here, but the conclusion that they made, um, oh, first of all, they also uh, claimed that uh, Cash Patel, who is definitely a friend to the Kyle Serafin show under no uncertain terms, I will say that, Cash, uh, when I also, he, I put you guys in touch, which you probably recall, and yes. when, I, when I did that, um, he said, I don't care who they are. You just tell me some guys that need help and I'll give them help. I have money to give help to people and I want to do that thing. He didn't care about what you'd been involved in. He literally went on my word as far as I could tell. Um, but he's a quote unquote extreme MAGA operative, which I think is a fantastic. I would put that in my bio too, if I were him. Uh, the conclusion that they came up with is that in an attempt to prove their quote unquote weaponization allegations, the Republicans, by the way, that's their word, not ours. Would you agree? Neither of us. Yeah. I haven't heard you guys use the word weaponized in any meaningful way. I've heard um, allegations of misuse of resources and um, violations of rule, policy, or law. Is that about accurate? Yes. Yep. Yeah. In, in my estimation, there's been no hyperbole in this entire broadcast, but I'm sure someone will disagree with that. That's all right. That's what that's what they're allowed to do. They just have to come with facts. Put it in the comments if you disagree with the way that these gentlemen have comported themselves. If you find some uh, credible allegations you'd like to put out there, we'll look into it. And if they're uh, if they're substantive, if they are full of enough substance, then we will uh, we'll bring them back on to to address it. Even I got uh, no problem with any of that. We could even do it for a shorter interview as needed. In an attempt to prove their quote unquote weaponization allegations, Republicans have turned to three individuals. That's you both, and Garrett O'Boyle, who's not here to defend himself, but we will do it another time, um, who have not only failed to provide any evidence of wrongdoing, but are entirely lacking in credibility. Listeners, I will allow you to decide whether or not they lack in that credibility. Uh, feel free to put that in the comments as well. If you think these guys are American heroes, you can say that. If you think that they are just honest operators sharing their opinion, please say that as well. If you think that these guys are scumbags and they're out there trying to bring about the downfall of the American uh, Republic, Feel free to knock that out as well. I don't think it'll get well voted, but do your thing as you need. In contrast, the committee heard from one supremely credible former FBI official who directly refuted the narrative Republicans are working to advance. I would love to know who this extremely, supremely, supremely credible person is. Supreme is a really Sounds, fugazi. Sounds a little fugazi to me. I don't it, know. It does. I wonder if it's that guy, Frankie Figs. That guy. That guy. That guy who uh, never did a criminal investigation. That's fine. Committee Democrats thus conclude, based on very little, that uh, these Republicans are not running good faith investigations. Instead, they are using this committee as a political messaging campaign designed to make sure that Donald Trump wins in 2024. Can I put you guys on the on the spot? If um, if you had a choice of anybody in America being president of the United States, is Donald Trump the one person that you would choose? Steve, I know you. I know you're in for it. If you had anybody in America could be the president. Uh, would, would no, I want, Kyle, I want Kyle Serafin to be Get out of here. Get, you're fired. You're done. I want nothing to do with that. George, can I put you on the spot with that as well? Sure. And they can even look up my tweet. Um, he's a brawler and I enjoy watching him, but um, we need someone a little bit more tactically and, and, and stealthy uh, as the next president. Okay. That's fair. Um, that makes you guys ultra negative ultra mega operatives i guess i'll let the uh the listeners decide whether or not that makes sense to them so 
we really do appreciate you folks listening in. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. I would ask you that you would please consider hitting the subscribe button on Rumble, on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, or wherever you are listening to our podcast, and we do appreciate it. If you did enjoy what you heard, uh, please consider sharing this content with a friend or two. That's always appreciated. It helps us grow the audience. It also helps that the number of people who have access to firsthand information, not secondhand like the Democrats have alleged, but firsthand information like Steve Friend, George Hill, um, it gives people access to these sources that they may not hear other places. Uh, and as always, we do appreciate your feedback. If you would be willing to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, there is a link that is in the show notes in the description below. Feel free to do that. We do try to read every single one of them, and uh, we'll probably pull one up. Producer Phil, you got one that you can read for us right now? Yeah, I sure do. We've got one from Texas here entitled Moms and Dads. I just listened to you and Steve Friend talk about the importance of moms and dads and the different things they bring to their kids' lives. Such good points. I'm so enjoying your podcast. Thank you for being a true American. I'll be listening on a regular basis. And that's from Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. Also got a nice comment here from the Give, Send, Go. I pray daily for the safety, security, and strength of all of the suspendables in particular. Your courage, integrity, and commitment are the very qualities we expect in that line of work. It's pathetic that those are the very people that the Bureau is purging. Interesting as well that those are the qualities the Bureau seems most afraid of. Stay strong, fight on. You are God's best warriors. Thank you to that anonymous donor. That's really thoughtful. Um, Steve, you got a book coming out. Do your plugs. Tell people where they can follow you and find you. Uh, True Social at real underscore Steve Friend on Twitter at real Steve Friend. My book is going to be uh, published in July, July 18th this year. Uh, it's called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to FBI Whistleblower. Has some some great anecdotes in there about my experience as a police officer and an FBI agent. And then some more details about what's gone on with my whistleblowing experience. Which is, in fact, legally defined whistleblowing. George, where can people follow you and uh, find what you're up to? Um, so I'm on Twitter at senior chief, uh, EXW, um, you know, uh, that's pretty much about it. Um, you're not a big I hype guy, George, you're not out there hyping anything. It's a must follow. No, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, that, that's the thing. I mean, it, and that's actually an important port, point, Kyle, is that I did this because I, I want the problem corrected. I, I don't need a job. Uh, I have a face that's barely good enough for radio, um, you know, I, you know, I just, I just want to see this problem fixed. That, that, that's all I want. You know, and if somebody wants to go snowshoeing or mountain climbing with me, by all means, uh, hit, look me up on Instagram. <laughs> I love that you have an Instagram. I have a thousand followers on Instagram, by the way, and I, I never use it. I think I have three pictures on there and I'm very uncomfortable because I don't know how to use it. I'm sort of jealous that you have one and that you know what you're doing with it. Um, Gentlemen, I really do appreciate you both joining me. I think that, uh, folks, if you haven't uh, understood the kind of people that we bring on here, this is the quality of guests, even in a pinch that we bring to you on a Monday morning. So please take this with you. Like I said, share it around. I want to thank Steve Friend and George Hill for being my guest. You have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, and we will see you again next time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.